buy that, except that Vicky is definitely not the wrong girl. We just don't know that, do we? She returned fast times, paused at 53 minutes, five seconds. Do you know who pauses fast times at 53 minutes, five seconds? People who like boobies, Ew, Robin. Gross. Boobies. Don't say boobies. Not a big deal, okay? I like boobies. You like boobies. Vicky likes boobies. Definitely. Check in the house. question quiz every Friday. Your grade is the average of all your quizzes, plus the midterm and final, which counts for one-third. Got it? Also, uh, there will be no eating 
E-A-T-I-N-G. No eating in this class. You get used to doing your own business on your own time. That's one demand I make. Just like you wouldn't want me to come to your house some evening and discuss U.S. history on your time, understand? Yes, sir. This guy's been stoned since the third grade. Yes? Yeah, I'm registered in this class. What class? This is U.S. history. See the globe right there. Really? Hey. May I come in? Oh, please. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. Yeah, I know that, dude. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. You're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. You dick! Welcome to episode 20 of CFX entitled Fast Times at Ridgemont High. As if you needed us to tell you, we heard those opening clips, you knew right. exactly what it was. I just couldn't resist putting quarter flash in. You know that. I know, dude. How many episodes have we mentioned quarter flash on? Eventually, we're going to have to do quarter flash, even though it's almost like they couldn't get the rights to a Pat Benatar song. So they had to get the B rate uh, Pat Benatar. <laughs> Harsh. We'll talk more about the soundtrack and it's uh, <laughs> you know, possible issues in, in a bit. Yeah. You're probably um, right yeah, though, because they mentioned Pat Benatar and obviously visually refer to her as we talked about in the last episode quite a bit. Right. 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 So again, welcome to the cultural futures exchange CFX. This is where we uh, examine different elements of cultural ephemera movie this week. Music, usually, uh, TV, last uh, time, a uh, couple times we've talked about TV shows. But we'll talk about stage and toys and cartoons and any other things we could possibly think of that we want to talk about. It's pretty much just an excuse for us to talk about whatever we want, right? And uh, it's a stock markety kind of thing, right, where we kind of go long on things. Say you should invest in these culturally. They'll be worth more in the future. Go short meaning that in the future we think the value of this particular particular cultural thing will go down or neutral where we don't think it's going to change much. And it's just kind of for fun and, and shits and giggles and all that. So so let's talk about Fast Times at Ridgemont High Slip. So where should we start? Yeah, I think, I think this is going to be a little different than some of the episodes we do. I think it's more akin to the Beach Boys episode than anything else because it's obvious. I think it's going to be obvious when we start talking about this where we already stand. 
I mean, we'll probably have a few criticisms of the movie or how it stands the test of time. But I think, you know, it's going to be pretty obvious that we're both really into this movie. So I think, uh, you know, it's it's not going to be quite the same as some of the episodes where, you know, we could fall either way. Right. I think uh, this one, uh, you know, especially revisiting it for me, I was actually surprised by how much I liked it. Um, I was kind of on the fence. But uh, so I'll just reveal that right away, because I, I think it's more interesting to talk about this movie, um, you know, more in depth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get to give an overview of what the movie is. I would recommend if you haven't seen this movie, just go watch it now and come back and listen later, um, because it's just worth seeing. Um, but if you if you don't want to or you you haven't or you still want to listen, that's fine. We're going to describe the movie in detail. Um, yeah, and, spoiler you know, alert, in other words, right? Yeah, spoiler alert, we're going to reveal all of the major plot points here. Um, but let's first we're going to talk about, you know, kind of the overview of the movie and, and what it is. Then we'll go into, you know, our kind of personal history with the movie a little bit, although that will be sprinkled throughout, um, especially for me. I think, uh, you know, part of my personal history with this movie is how I relate it to myself. And I think Jeff is the same, right? We, You know what this movie the history is, yeah, we saw the movie at a certain point, but then this movie has so many elements that are relatable for growing up, especially during this time. And uh, I think, you know, we're going to go into that as we go through, uh, you know, we'll do the plot summary that kind of hit the major characters. Then we'll go into the zeitgeist like we, oh no, then we'll go into our personal histories. Then after our personal histories, we'll kind of build, you know, talk about the zeitgeist of this film. And then, um, you know, we'll go into the history of the production a little bit. Then we'll do a deep dive into each of the plot threads. Because the, the unique thing about this movie is, I think, more than a lot of other movies of its kind of high school genre, coming of age genre, there are a few movies that have similar plot structure. But this movie doesn't have a single main character, right. which is really interesting. It's got several. And it's got several kind of plots that that kind of coincide and they intersect uh, characters intersect to some degrees more than others. Um, so I think let's just go into it. So, you know, basically this is like a kind of slice of life movie, you know, it's about a year or so maybe give or take. It's obviously there is a passage of time that's indicated by a few scenes. It's kind of the lives of these characters as, as they relate to each other, um, you know, to various extents. And it, what's interesting, too, is it's both a drama and a comedy. There's very serious parts of this movie and very funny parts of the movie. Sometimes um, at the same time, right? At the same time, yeah. right? It, 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 you have a scene that could be quite, dram uh, quite dramatic, but it has moments of comedy in it. And they're put together in a way, you know, that feels like more of a character study than anything else. And we'll talk about the origins of it, too, because I, I have some issues with the origins of this movie and how realistic things may or may not be. But what's interesting about this movie is even with some of the sequences not seeming real or in the real world at all, it has some scenes that are so real <laughs> that that they really I think they still have an impact today. So. The major characters of the, is there anything general you wanted to say before I just kind of give a sketch of the characters or you can take some of the characters too? Yeah, no, go um, for it. I, I think we'll cover things in line here. So just, yeah. Okay. So first, uh, obviously the main character, uh, if there is a main character, probably it's Stacey Hamilton played by Jennifer Jason Lee. She's a 15 year old girl. Uh, she's a freshman at uh, Ridgemont High. Um, and the story, her story is mostly about her becoming sexually active for the first time. I, I do want to and, say that the actress was 19 
playing 15. Right, right, and, right. And she was 19, but she looks young. She looks young. She's and the daughter the, of uh, Vic Morrow, who was an actor who was actually killed famously in the Twilight Zone movie filming uh, by a helicopter blade. It's kind of gruesome. So Right before this right movie. Right before the right? movie was released. I don't released. know if the shooting was at the same time, but this was like... No, it was right before yeah, it was Twilight. released, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she had shot the movie... And then he had been killed and then it was released. Yeah, he'd been killed in a helicopter accident uh, on Twilight Zone, the movie, during his section. And, uh, but but Stacey Hamilton, you know, she's a freshman and she has this older, more experienced friend, Linda Barrett, played by Phoebe Cates. Uh, You heard the clip of moving in stereo at the beginning. I think everyone's waiting for us to talk about that scene. Don't worry, we're going to get into that big time. But Linda Barrett is kind of a main character, but she's really more... It's really more about her relationship with Stacy. We don't really get into her mind so much uh, as much as Stacy. There's it's not really shown from her perspective as much as Stacy, but she's still a major character and obviously, you know, has a, a an incredible scene. And, and it, you know, this is a very well, I was gonna go say Phoebe Cates was actually a year younger. The actress is a year, it was 18 when she filmed this, uh, and Jennifer Jason Lee was 19. And Linda is supposed to be like this older, more experienced, you know, character, but she's actually younger. Just the actresses. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think Fabi Keats had made one film before this, which was Paradise. Yeah, famously. Uh, which was a ripoff of The Blue Lagoon, uh, starring Willie Ames in the, in the Christopher Atkins role. You know, it was a complete ripoff. And she had a pretty bad experience on that. And her experience on this was better. And I think, you know, she's given more... Because obviously she's eye candy in paradise and she's kind of eye candy here uh, because she's just a very beautiful model and really kind of unique looking with her, uh, you know, mixed race, Chinese, Filipino and, um, you know, Caucasian, uh, European. So she um, but she's really good in the part. And we'll talk more about that because she really does come off as older and more experienced. And that's part of that is how good Jennifer Jason Lee is in the part at playing someone so young young seeming and you know she looks younger than her age for sure um and you know this is uh very realistically depicted sex scenes with jennifer jason lee as she comes of age and there's even a spoiler alert even an abortion that happens which we'll get into now her brother older brother is another main character of the film brad hamilton uh, this character was played by judge reinhold who was 26 at the time and really looks maybe even older yeah I mean, he really, we've talked about this before in Happy Days and uh, maybe a little bit in what's happening about older uh, 20-somethings playing teen characters. And obviously, this is a perennial issue, right? Uh, You know, it gets really bad. Joe mentioned, uh, sorry, Joe. Um, uh, uh, Jeff mentioned, you know, in a previous episode about 90210, where it's absolutely ridiculous, you know, in the 90s. But this is something that would always happen. But he you know, it kind of suits the movie that he seems older because he has actually pretty good relationship with Stacy. And we'll talk about that more, but his main trajectory is he's this um, teenager who's kind of feeling, starting to feel older and he's a senior and he's starting to, um, you know, he's got these, I think this movie is really good in talking about teenagers working, right? He has a series of fast food jobs of which he's very proud, which is kind of interesting um, but it is that first teen job and he's got this car he's, you know, very proud of and he's got this whole crew of friends and he's kind of the big man on campus in his mind. Yeah. And I think that's all really interesting. Obviously, 
you know, he doesn't interact with the other characters, you know, Stacy a bit. Um, and obviously Linda in a pivotal scene, which that's that moving in stereo clip that we played at the beginning. That's, we will of course go into that famous, uh, you know, masturbation scene, but that's, you know, he's an interesting character because he kind of has uh, this whole plot line of his own. Uh, but it also is kind of true. Uh, there's some truth to uh, this character as a senior. And I'm going to talk about how it relates to my life a little bit too. Um, another major character is Mark Ratner. He's kind of a nerd um, and he has a major crush on Stacy and they're kind of getting together is a major plot line of the film as well. He has a kind of corollary to as, as Stacy has Linda as this kind of older, wiser advisor Mark uh, uh, Ratner has Mike Damone, right? This know-it-all kind of slick. He's actually a ticket scalper, which we'll talk about. Um, but he gives him a lot of dating advice and it kind of parallels, the, his relationship with Mike Damone parallels Mark's relationship with Stacy. And of course, there's this whole love triangle we'll get into between Mark, Mike, and Stacy. Um, and Mark kind of comes off as this kind of nebbish Woody Allen-like figure. And what's interesting is, you know, I joked to Jeff that he was like a cross between Henry Winkler and Woody Allen, like the <laughs> bastard love child. Yeah, funny. Uh, but what's interesting is he actually was in a play that was directed by Woody Allen called The Floating Light Bulb. And that's how Amy Heckerling found him. Wow. Right. And um, he plays kind of a Woody Allen-like character and he actually won a Tony Award or was nominated. So he... He he really does come off as like a play it again Sam era Woody he Allen. Sounds very like awkward, him too, right? You know, he, and he sounds yeah. like him, right? Of course, you know the actor um, Brian Backer, who would who played Mark Ratner, would later become really famous as the uh, kind of founder of the whole for Dummies series. You know, and he's like a gazillionaire because the, the, of that, the right? uh, the uh, the uh, guy who is not not the actor, the guy who is based on. This guy, the the original. Oh, oh, not yeah, not yeah, Brian Becker. Yeah. Sorry, I totally effed that up. Yeah, it's the guy. He Andy uh, Rathbone or something him. like that is the guy right. here. Oh, okay, so Cameron Crowe yeah. knew him. Yeah, and based Mark. Okay, yeah, yeah. so it wasn't the yeah, actor. But, that's, that's but a, that the, the real life inspiration for Ratner went on to write. Yeah, a lot of those dummy for dummies books and stuff oh, like okay. that. Yeah, and had had his opinion of his, the depiction changed over time i think initially he was very you know not happy with it and thought that he came off as too much of a dweeb and like um right you know he thought himself cooler than ratner but i think in later years realized you know it come to have some affection for it which we can talk about later i mean the guys had to be nerdy you wrote pc for dummies yeah pcs for dummies i mean come on and he created this whole you know empire so in a way you know he wins in the end um you know Obviously, the big main character, uh, you know, of the movie, who's kind of the symbol of the movie, even though you would think he would have a bigger role based on the marketing of the movie, as we'll talk about, was uh, Jeff Spicoli. So Jeff Spicoli is a stone uh, surfer kid. You know, he doesn't have much interest in school and uh, he provides most of the comedy of the film and especially his interactions with the teacher, Mr. Han, played by uh, my favorite Martian, Martian Ray Walston, right? And that's his main adversary. And those are the main scenes, but he kind of comes and goes and he has some interactions. And we're going to talk a lot about him because this was a major, major performance by Sean Penn. And it made him a star, made him who he was, even though it's kind of different than anything Sean Penn would ever do before or after this film. 
Um, and we'll talk about him a lot, right? <clears throat> I mentioned Linda Barrett, right? Uh, played by Phoebe Cates, Mike Damone, played by Robert Romanus. Um, Mike Damone, uh, Robert Romanus is another actor who really seems a lot older. He was 26 as well, and he definitely doesn't look like a high school kid. Right. Um, but I think he's gives a great performance as well. Uh, I mentioned Mr. Hand, played by Ray Walston. Now, in the original book, as we'll talk about in the movie, uh, talk about later in the history, this character was supposed to be based on Jack Lord from Hawaii Five O. That's why he says aloha a lot. <laughs> Ray Walston obviously doesn't look like Jack Lord at all. Uh, but I think his performance, you know, he's like a short guy, um, but he comes off as a really strong, big personality, very forceful. It's, a, it's probably the best thing that actor ever did. You know, it's it's an amazing performance. Obviously, we should mention Mr. Vargas, the biology teacher <laughs> who plays in a lot of comic scenes, uh, not only in relation to Stacy and and Mark, but also especially Spicoli toward the end. And we'll talk about that. Um, and we'll also talk about. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about Mr. Vargas more. Uh, another minor character is Brad's current girlfriend, Lisa, um, and she figures in kind of Brad's conflict with his wanting to be free but then kind of needing her as he has a kind of goes into a downward spiral in the film as he has uh, loses his fast food job that he's so proud of uh arnold is another minor character that comes and goes in the film he's uh most interacts most with brad he wants to get a fast food he works at a restaurant called bronco burger and he wants to get a job at all american burger which is kind of the cool fast food place to work well, one um, thing about Arnold, I, I want to say as a character that there's on the internet, there's a bunch of deleted scenes um, from Fast Times that never made it into the final cut. And some of the deleted scenes sort of portray Arnold as, you know, this kind of nerdy guy who really wants to hang out with Brad and his cool friends. Um, and there's some scenes that were cut that make that, you know, more, uh, you know, aspirational on, on Brad's part to to be part of um, or, or on uh, on uh, Arnold's part to be part of Brad's uh, circle with his cool friends um, that isn't shown as much and that's not really fixated on in the movie, but it's interesting background nevertheless. Right, and there's a, I remember there's that clip where he's trying to operate the shake machine at Bronco Burger. I don't know if that was deleted or that's in the movie. That's in the movie. I forget. It's in it. yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, it's like a flash to him like operating the shake and it's exploding in his face. And there's a lot of him like, there's one scene where he's trying to push a trump, like his musical horn, like it's a, a tuba into a locker, you know, and it's like there's, there's a scene of him running into a door. So there are some of that in the movie. But, yeah, his interaction with Brad, there's much more to it that was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, another character is Charles Jefferson, who's the football star of the Ridgemont High. Um, what is their team? Uh, I Ridgemont forget. High. I forget too. God damn it. We yeah, should yeah. know this. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll put, we'll put the, uh, the team, uh, I guess, uh, animal. It's like an animal. Uh, yeah, we'll put that in the, in, in our Instagram. Uh, but yeah, he basically is the football star and he is already being sought out by, uh, talent scouts. It's the um, wolf and actually, right. Ridgemont oh, high wolf. Okay. Which is also the same, um, mascot that uh, Van Eyes high. Which uh, is where oh, wow. it was filmed, and I I should know that. Uh, for- <laughs> they probably used some of the uh, iconography from that. Yeah. Um, 
And there's a whole great football scene, the game that was actually not filmed by director Amy Heckerling. It was filmed by another director because she didn't said she didn't know anything about football. So they actually had the producer, Art Linson, kind of film, you know, direct some of those scenes. Um, you know, and then he has a little brother who interacts with Spicoli, who's kind of an, you know, a stoner kid who's friends with Jeff Spicoli. And there's a great scene we're going to go into with them driving Charles Jefferson's uh, car. Um, and then there's also one of the things the movie really gets inter- right that I think we definitely grew up with is there's these clicks, right? So, you know, going into high school in the early 80s, there were there were clicks, right? There were the stoner kids, there were the jocks, you know, and then Brad, so that, so, you know, obviously Spicoli has his stoner buds played by future pretty famous actors, Eric Stoltz and Anthony Edwards. Um, and then Brad has has uh, his crew, right? That all wear these weird trucker hats. I don't know. That's in the book. And that's something Cameron Crowe with the, you know, they're wearing like cat, you know, the cat uh, equipment hats. And, um, you know, and one of those kids that hangs out with Brad is Nicolas Cage in his first role. Yep. So that's kind of a, a sketch of the, um, you know, the basic, the basic story kind of just follows these main characters and their interactions. And we'll go into more detail on that. But before we do that, let's go into our personal histories with this film. So, Jeff, why don't you kick that off? Yeah. um, So this movie came out in, I believe, 1982. Um, I was 11, basically. I did not see it in a theater. I wanted to. All of my friends um, wanted to see it, basically. (laughs) A few of their parents let them or they went with older siblings or they went with parents who took them into this R-rated movie. No no luck on my side. and I was really pissed off about it because it was definitely after it came out a really a big hit and sort of an underground swell hit, you know, among teenagers. Right. Um, it was spe- uh, the, the whole movie, all the mall scenes were filmed at the Sherman Oaks Galleria in Sherman Oaks, California, in the, in the San Fernando Valley, which is um, not so much when it was being filmed I was a little bit younger. But in the years subsequent to that is where I basically grew up and spent a lot of time hanging out with my friends. And so all the, you know, little junior high wannabe kids that they show in the background and stuff like that, I was one of those kids. Um, The arcade, which they showed in the uh, movie where Spicoli's playing with uh, Jefferson's little brother and and his other stoner friends, um, Eric Stoltz and uh, Anthony Edwards and, and things like that. I played lots of video games there. And by the way, uh, children, if you're listening, you don't know what an arcade is. It's a place that in the olden days where video games used to be in these big consoles that were like the size of a person and they were all stacked in a, in a big giant room and you put quarters in it and play a game like uh, Zaxxon and Centipede and Missile Command, which actually features in the movie slightly. They show uh, Missile Command uh, and, and, and uh, all sorts of other uh, games we can get into, Galga. Um, we can do a whole episode, maybe we will, on, on video games of that era, Battlezone. Okay, I could go on, folks. But th- anyway, so that's the idea of the arcade. Spent a lot of time there. All the stuff they showed in the background, Perry's Pizza was actually there. Uh, they showed Swenson's uh, Ice Cream Place was in there. Licorice Pizza was actually in there. There used to be these things called record stores, too, um, that you may <laughs> not be familiar with. And one of the big ones in LA at that time was licorice pizza. The warehouse was another one. I don't know if you remember that. Anyway, um, I saw the movie on video pretty much right after it was released. I was able to get my hands on it and I loved it immediately. I thought it was great. 
It was really cool seeing places that I was hanging out at um, and knew well. Um, I loved it immediately. And one of the things I, I realized in retrospect that it represented to me at the time was it was emblematic of a theme that we've talked about on this show quite a bit, where like these younger kids are on the outside looking in um, of a cooler group of older kids doing stuff that we wanted to do. And we sort of talked about this certainly in relationship to the Us Festival, where Slip and I were saying how we were too young to go and our older friends and cousins and uh, siblings and, and all that all got to go and we didn't, and that sucked. We talked about that a little bit in the Missing Persons Berlin episode, how, you know, when they were playing on the Sunset Strip in the, uh, and, and, and around there in the early 80s, maybe we wanted to go, but we couldn't, we were too young. Motley Crue, same thing with the uh, Sunset Strip theme. But anyway, it, the movie showed all these cool, uh, fun things older kids were doing, like going to concerts, driving, having sex, of course, uh, cool parties where, you know, my friends and I were wanting to do that, but we were playing D&D, right? We, we weren't doing anything cool. And at the time, this wasn't cool, even though now it is kind of because of that era and that sort of stage in young teenagers' lives has been really, really celebrated with Stranger Things, right? Uh, almost... Uh, to ridiculous levels, right? Yeah, I mean, Stranger Things is most uh, is a combination of a lot of influences, right? There's like Spielberg, and then especially Stephen King is a huge one. But Fast Times is all over that show, yeah. right? You you played the clip that was from season four where they're working in the video store, but it's season three. They, uh, you know, there's it's all centered around the mall. That's right. And there's actually one of the characters actually talks about how his girlfriend is as hot as Phoebe Cates. Right. Right. So there are references to fast times. Uh, and then even in season three, the kind of um, hot metal guy, the asshole bro older brother uh, played by Dakary Montgomery, he walks out uh, to the pool and they play, you know, he's shirtless and he's all ripped and all these older women, uh, you know, basically are ogling him and they're playing moving in stereo. Right. It's a complete homage so obviously the Duffer brothers were completely influenced by Fast Times and we'll talk about its enduring influence. But yeah, Stranger Things has so many little uh, touches and references to Fast Times. And it kind of made that like, you know, 13, 14 year old, you know, age a little bit cooler. But at the time when I was 13 and 14, it was not cool at all. We were just so envious of what, um, you know, it looked like you got to do when you were in high school and then the ironic thing is, is when you're in high school, you look at things uh, like what college college movies and what college kids are doing. Like, oh, high school sucks. College is really cool. And the college kids right. are doing all the things that you you wish um, you could. And, you know, it's funny, you know, our society is a strange place, right? Because the irony is you spend most of your childhood wanting to be older and then most of your adult years wanting to be younger. And I'm just sort of wondering, was is there ever a peak? You know, it's like like people always right. you know want something other than they are. It's it's a, it's a little speaks to the human condition and all those sorts of things. But anyway, well, a lot of this movie is about kids wanting to be older and more mature than they are. That's right. right? There's this whole thing about Linda Barrett. Like you shouldn't date high school boys. Like she's yeah. dating a college a college boy, and she you know kind of dismisses Stacy when she's interested in Mark Ratner. He's just like a kid, right. you know. And there's this whole. And in, that's also in Brad Hamilton, right? He wants to be independent. He has his car, he has his job. And, you know, there's all this, this whole theme of everybody wanting to be older and move kind of, that's why it's fast times, right? right? Fast times is, is like a, 
you know, it's a fun time thing, but it's also like you're moving fast. You're becoming older and you're trying to get ahead of where you are. Right. And, and just rush into sex and all these things. So it's like definitely your kind of observation is all over this movie. And it's really about that. That's the, what the movie is about. Indeed. And then lastly, um, musically, I mean, we've talked about Fast Times and made reference to it pretty much almost every episode in one way or another uh, to date. Maybe not everyone, but at least half of them. Uh, we talked about Cheap Trick. Obviously, the Damone character is a whole scene about uh, Cheap Trick in this. Earth, Wind, and Fire. There's a whole scene about Earth, Wind, and Fire. We talked about it specifically in that episode. The Pat Benatar uh, thing we played uh, literally last episode, right? Um, that clip about uh, the different girls at Fast Times, uh, Fast Time High School, Ridgemont High, who look like Pat Benatar, and so forth. So we'll talk more about the soundtrack and, and other things as we get into it. But that's basically uh, my personal history. It's just one of the seminal movies uh, for me, and um, I love it. And to your point, we're not going to be disagreeing on how big of an impact or how good the movie is. So, you know, stay tuned for all the details. Right. And I just should say that the reason music is such a big part of this movie is because it was written by Cameron Crowe, who is, you know, a prodigy rock critic as a teenager. And so I think he purposefully puts musical references throughout. And I think it's one thing that really resonated with me because I was getting into music at the time, too. So as far as my personal history, you know, I I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I saw this on cable first. Right. Um and I knew about the film when it came out. It was the same feeling Jeff had. This was the movie to see. You know, there were a lot of movies like this at the time. And we'll talk about the zeitgeist. But this was one of the earliest kind of teen movies um, to really have an impact. And it was definitely cool. You know, we all love Spicoli. And I actually ended up getting those checkered vans nice. when I was in eighth grade. Um, so I bought those vans because I wanted to be cool. And I saw Sean Penn's Jeff Spicoli as about the coolest thing ever, even though, you know, I was not a dumb kid. And, you know, I was kind of I was I I kind of saw myself as as more like Mark Ratner. But I was really like something this movie doesn't really show, which was a complete and utter nerd, um, you know, uh, with with zits and stuff. This movie doesn't really show that side of things as much, but I think it does kind of touch on it with Mark and his awkwardness. Um, and, uh, I also was probably more angry and bitter than, than he is. Um, so, you know, as far as my influence, I'm going to talk, talk about more about how it, how I kind of relate things in my life to it as we go through more in depth uh, into the plot. But I do think one thing that Jeff brought up is the importance of the mall. Right. And I think this is really interesting because the original book, this is based on, which we'll go more into in the history and probably discuss throughout um, doesn't really feature the mall. So the mall was Amy Heckerling, director Amy Heckerling's idea. And it was a great idea, right? Because you could center these activities in both the high school and the mall. But this was completely true to life. I was going to the mall ever since I was in junior high, yep. right? My, our parents would drop us off. We'd go to the movies. We'd go to the arcade. We'd get an Orange Julius, which is featured another, uh, uh, you know, uh, food place, the food court. We'd go to the food court. We'd eat pizza. We'd do all this. Um, and it was such a big part of my childhood. And this movie just nails that. It just gets it completely right. You know, uh, by featuring them all. One other thing, you mentioned Brad and his various jobs, but all of the characters in this movie have jobs. 
right? Like it's true. You know, I think this was a different era. I think kids had less money. And if you wanted money yeah. to do it, like, like parents weren't giving you lots, lots of money to do everything. It seems like now kids have like almost, you know, hundreds of dollars to do whatever they want, whenever they want, like back then, unless you were, I guess, really wealthy, but you know, neither of us and, you know, the kids we hang out with, no one had any money. If you wanted money, you needed to go get your ass a job and earn money to, to buy all the stuff like a car and, you know, all these other things that the characters had. And every single main character had a job, uh, maybe with the exception of Charles Jefferson, because he was getting paid on the side from, you know, recruiters, you know, illegally, I guess, right. trying to get him to go to their uh, college. But anyway, I just want, it's just an interesting difference compared to like some of the movies today. And Stranger Things actually picks up on this, too, because they all have jobs, too. Right. Right. Or at least the older the older kids. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think. What's interesting is I didn't have a job and I'll talk more about this because I had friends who had jobs and I had a friend who kind of reminds me of Brad Hamilton a little bit in his job because a lot of kids worked at Disneyland, which was like the job to get because I lived right near Disneyland. Uh, But I didn't have a job until my senior year. I was really focused on school and it was only at my senior year where I kind of started, you know, once I got into college, I just started effing off and my grades went lower and I just started hanging out with my friends all night and stuff and uh, you know, I wasn't playing sports anymore because I played sports my first three years in high school. So I didn't really have time for a job. I would have swim practice in the morning at 6 a.m. And then I would come, I would have swim practice in the afternoon till like 4.30. I had time to do my homework and go to sleep pretty much. So I didn't really have time. But my senior year, I quit sports. I would get off at 1.45. My mom's like, you got to get a job. Yeah. So I got a job at Pizza Hut, yeah. you know, uh, my senior year. So I didn't have a job, but a lot of my friends did. Um, and uh but yeah, this movie definitely shows that that kind of aspect. And I don't think many other teen movies at the time did, or at least not until this movie kind of showed that right. aspect of it. And, and I think it's one of the things that really holds up, um, you know, it's and again, the high school clicks, everything. I could totally relate to this. Um, and, um, you know, obviously this movie, uh, I also kind of put this in the same categories that John Hughes movies, because they try to be more realistic about the emotional impact of being a teenager. But I would argue that this movie goes places those movies don't go. Those movies are decidedly PG movies, right? They don't really go into, uh, you know, the darker side and the more sexual side of being a teenager like Fast Times. And I don't really think any other movie, um, there are probably a few scattered around there, but I don't think any other movie does it to the degree that Fast Times did. And then what's interesting is, you know, around 2001, um, there was this phenomenon on the Internet still around. November is what's called NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. And there's this whole thing that uh, this guy started who I knew uh, in San Francisco. And it's become this big deal where in November you just write a novel, right? It's like you just go for it. You just write a novel. So I wrote a novel in 2001. This is after September 11th, and I was kind of like, not happy in my tech jobs and all this. And I was kind of like, maybe I should just quit and just try to write, you know? So I wrote this novel about kind of about high school or junior high, and it was very music centered. And at the time I didn't really think about how much I ripped off this fucking movie. Yeah. I had a character who was like a little high school rock critic. It was totally Mike, Mike Damone. Yeah. Totally Damone. And it was like, I was just like, I just completely ripped this off. And it, it was, this movie just stuck with me. You know, it's whole the music thing in this movie, even though we'll talk about the soundtrack and how 
that might be one of the weakest aspects of the film in some ways. Um, that was a huge deal for me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but then looking back, I'm like, yeah, that novel I wrote, I just steal so much <laughs> from this movie. I mean, I just ripped it off, you know, yeah. even though there were some original ideas in there and the writing is terrible because it's just one month and I just realized, hey, writing a novel is freaking hard. Yeah. You know, we it's have like that it's in common with Cameron Crowe because as you'll talk about the book, oh, it's yeah, not yeah, yeah. well written in my opinion. Right, right. Okay, so let's let's set the stage. Let's do the zeitgeist of this movie. So obviously, you know, this movie is in the long tradition of movies about teenagers in high school. And where that really begins for me, I mean, obviously there were movies in the 60s and the beach party movies and all that. They bear very little relationship to this. This movie kind of has more of a slice of life feel. And it's funny because I've recently thought about this. And I think one of the first movies to do this was The Last Picture Show, which is not just about kids. But it's a lot about like Sybil Shepherd is kind of the uh, Phoebe Cates of that era. And she is this unattainable beauty in that film. I mean, it's a masterpiece, that movie. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. And I think it really influenced American Graffiti, which, is, of course, is a movie that we mentioned so many times um, on this show. Maybe eventually we'll tackle it. But American Graffiti is, I think, the main influence on this film. Because it's very similar. It takes place over a night in, you know, I guess what was Modesto, right? And and there's different plot threads, right? There's the kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's the Ron Howard and Cindy Williams characters who are kind of, uh, you know, kind of feeling uh, the strain of their relationship as high school sweethearts. There's the Richard Dreyfus character who's kind of taken on all kinds of adventures. You know, there's the kind of hot rod guy. You know, there's all these different characters that it kind of goes, there's the nerd guy who gets the beautiful girl, you know, there's all these characters who uh, it kind of goes back and forth and tells their stories at the same time. And they kind of intersect. And I think that is the main influence on Cameron Crowe here. Um, and we'll talk about the whole book uh, in the history a little more about how he wrote the book. But I do think American Graffiti is a towering influence on this film. Another towering influence on this film, you know, again, we think of high school movies, we think of John Hughes, you know, the 80s movies, Revenge of the Nerds, Last American Version, all these. They were all after Fast Times. You have to remember, Fast Times was one of the first of these 80s teen kind of, ex it's kind of exploitation, but kind of not, because there is a lot, you know, there's obviously the Phoebe Cates scene, which is complete exploitation, even though it does kind of tie into some reality with the masturbation, right? And there's there's nudity and there's sex, but it's handled in a very frank manner, right? So Animal House, I would say, would be an influence on this film. Porky's came out around the same time. It was a year earlier. I don't think Porky's was an influence on this film, really. And Porky's is just complete exploitation, right? Um, you know, even though there's some reality to Porky's, it's very exaggerated and not really of the quality of this film. But it was around the time. Another film I think might have been a little bit of an influence was Meatballs, right? Meatballs is dealing with younger kids, but it's also dealing with some teen sexuality. And it, it, it has more of an adult influence. One thing about this movie that's very striking is there, there's a few, you know, there's Mr. Han, there's Mr. Vargas, but there's no parents in this movie at all. Yeah. Like you hear, I think you hear Stacy's mom yell in one scene from another room, but it's almost like Charlie Brown where the parents aren't there. Right. You know, it's like the kids rule and that's really interesting, right? Um, and then another, um, you know, and you could say there were other movies like Bad News Bears, which is about younger kids, might've had a little influence, but, uh, you know, just some of the comedy and drama mix. But again, this movie, I think, um, 
other than American Graffiti, it's kind of original in that way. And I think it was more of an influence on movies that came after than it was influenced by movies that came before, um, which is really a testament, I think, to the screenplay and to the direction, right? And then you have a female director, which we'll talk about in the history, which was very rare at this time, very rare. And you get, one thing you get in Fast Times that almost never happens in teen movies is you get a female perspective, yeah. right? Stacey Ham, you see Stacey Hamilton is like this main character. And that is so rare because most of the time this was uh, from boys or, or young men perspective, right? It wasn't from a female perspective. Yeah, all these other movies are, um, uh, you know, teenage boys trying to get laid basically in one, you know, thing or another, right? Right, right. Yeah. Like Porky's especially, yeah. right? There's, there's almost no, you know, even though Kim Cattrall, you get a little bit of her perspective as the as a character. It's almost always from Pee Wee's perspective or the other boys, right? right? Um, and uh, and yeah, but there is a masturbation scene in Porky's, right? Yeah. There's there he's masturbating to National Geographic. Yeah. It's kind of this '50s coming <laughs> of age thing. So you know that could have influenced Fast, I'm sure. Um, and then there's the musical element, which is mainly because of Cameron Crowe being a rock critic, which we're going to get into more in the history. Uh, that I think, um, you know, we talked about this era in our Billy Joel Glass Houses episode, especially maybe even a little bit in the Pat Benatar era. And, and, and this, you know, we've covered this early 80s era a lot, yeah. Motley Crue. And, you know, um, and uh, I think that all the rep musical references are basically Cameron Crowe trying to get those in. Right. Yeah. Um, because he was that was his world. That was his universe. And we'll talk more about that in the history of how this movie came to be. And then I just wanted to say something, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of the zeitgeist of this film isn't coming from other movies, but from real life shit that was going on. Right. That's right. This the, the kind of rise of the shopping mall is a place as a kind of locus for teens to hang out. Right. I mean, like you said, you were always at the arcade. You were, you know, you would go to the theater where Mark Ratner worked. Right. You right. go to Perry's Pizza where. Uh, you know, Stacy and Linda worked. Um, you, you know, you would hang out in the mall. We would do the same thing. That's where we hung out. We would just go to the mall and just walk around, you know, maybe see a movie, maybe play some arcade games, but then you just walk around and check out girls or whatever. Yeah. And this was just a, a total locus for all of us. And at the same time, you have the reference to the Galleria in Frank Zappa's Valley Girl. Um, and what's interesting is there would be a TV show based on fast times that would follow up that would not do well. Yeah. Um, and Jeff might talk a little bit more about that. I don't even remember it. I know I watched it, but one of the consultants on that TV show was moon unit Zappa, you know, who was provided the, um, you know, the, the Valley girl isms for the song Valley girl, like Frank Zappa's daughter. Yep. And then you had like skateboard and surf culture. Surf culture was around. We talked about this in our endless summer episode. It was around since like the late forties. Right. And it was never uncool to be a surfer. It's still not uncool to be a surfer. It's still always one of these things that's been cool, but especially in the late seventies, there was this whole rise of skateboard culture and surf culture, especially in Southern California, where this movie is set and where we grew up. Right. That's definitely part of the creation of Spicoli. And for and sure. Skateboard. I, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, obviously, and we weren't necessarily near the beach like you were, you know, you talked about, right. we talked about this in the endless summer episode, but skateboarding was a big deal. Um, there were kids and, and, and this was, again, you know, we referenced it to kind of a Lords of Dogtown stuff. And a lot of the skateboard culture was birthed in Southern California. Um, just like, like a lot of the American surf culture was birthed in Southern California, at least. 
And skateboarding was huge, you know, and like all my friends uh, skateboarded to various degrees of skill. I was on the lower end of the skill for sure, but I could skateboard a little bit. We all, we all kind of were into that. Yeah, I had a skateboard. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was just kind of like one of those things that you just did. You skateboarded around, you took your skateboard, you know, like they show Spicoli and his friends skateboarding a little bit, just picking the skateboard up, kind of putting it over to their shoulder, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just like what you did, you know, and, and. Um, there, the other thing they don't ever show in movies, but always there's always some kid in our group who had a cast because he, oh, he yeah. you know, because somebody had always fallen and broken their wrist or hand or something like that skateboarding. And they never show that in these movies. But like, I, I mean, every single kid I knew I had an injury at some point, including me, by the way, I broke my hand at one point uh, skateboarding. So they don't ever show that, but that was also a reality. Yeah, not too long before this, there was that whole Dogtown and Z-Boys thing, right? right? That where you had like Tony Alba and these skate kids become like these world-renowned celebrities and give birth to the whole sport, right? right. And, And they were just skating around pools, but then you started to see skate parks and that's where these kids would do these tricks and get their arms broken and stuff. But this was a huge kind of cultural thing and Spicoli has the look and feel perfectly of one of those guys. A hundred percent. He really looks like that. So let's get into the background. So before we get into the actual, you know, production a little bit, we're going to talk about a little bit about Cameron Crowe because I find this, I find his career absolutely fascinating. Obviously, you know, he eventually would become a director of some renown and his story is fictionalized in the movie, almost famous. Um, And, you know, it's based on his story. You know, he was a really precocious kid. He skipped like three grades in school, very smart. Right. And he started writing reviews for his local paper, the San Diego door um, when he was 13. And he, through that, he got, became, friends with the, you know, very famous rock critic, Lester Bangs, which is, you know, who's depicted by Philip Seymour Hoffman in the film. And, uh, you know, he sort of corresponded with him. And through that connection, he was able to get a job with a Rolling Stone uh, when he was like 15 years old. And what was interesting about his career at Rolling Stone was actually really important because, you know, these rock critics were absolute snobs and they didn't like a lot of the popular music of the day. You know, I mean, it's very famous that when Led Zeppelin was out, they were absolutely panned. Now they're universally looked upon as one of the greatest bands of all times, but their albums didn't get really good reviews by the critics. You know, the critics were more interested in like the Velvet Underground and the kind of punk rock, proto-punk scene. And, you know, maybe maybe some of the singer-songwriter stuff. They weren't really interested in like, you know, heavy rock like Black Sabbath and, and Led Zeppelin at the time. Um, but Cameron kind of approached his writing as a fan. And he, also being young, it was kind of charm, charming to these rock stars. Yeah. They were much more open to talking with him. You know, they they knew he was kind of worshiping them and would kind of depict them and in, in his writing like they would want to be seen, right? They, he wasn't super critical of these artists. And he would, you know, he write about bands the critics didn't give a shit about, like Yes and the Eagles and Led Zeppelin and these really popular bands, Crosby, Steals, Nash & Young, and were panned as well. And I think that sold Rolling Stone a lot of magazines. I don't think Rolling Stone would have lasted if he didn't. They didn't have him, yeah. to be honest, uh, because he would write these these reviews. But then he also got critically acclaimed artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, and David Bowie to talk to him, just because of the novelty of talking to this kid. Right. And you know his writing about these bands often kind of has you know their kind of slice of life as they tour the U.S meeting fans. And I think, you know, his writing about that would definitely play into 
pastime. So, you know, as he became more famous, he decided he would pitch this book idea to Simon and Schuster about him kind of going undercover in a high school. Um, and he did go, supposedly he attended um, a high school in San Diego, right? Um, called Claremont High School. And I'm really skeptical that this ever happened. Really? Um, Why? Because when you read the book, it doesn't read like a nonfiction book. It reads like a fictional book. And what the book is, and what's interesting is the book has all been but forgotten. I mean, it's out of print. Uh, if you want to get a copy on Amazon, you can pay like $500. Luckily, Jeff had an ebook of it, so I was able to read some of it. Um, and uh, what's your opinion of this of this book? I think it's a piece <laughs> of shit. I think it's it's yeah. not well written. I, I think it is, it's meandering. It's not well written. It doesn't have any concision whatsoever. It could really use a good editor. I, I don't know if it's completely fictionalized because, again, he did base characters like Ratner off of real people who existed. But I, I, I think your point that it's highly exaggerated in, in certain cases is almost certainly true. You know what I mean? Well, it's almost like there's a, there's a lot in the book. So some of the book um, was some of the dialogue and scenes in the book are verbatim in the film. Right. right? But the film basically narrows things down quite yeah. a bit to these few characters. Right. The, the book has a lot more. Like there's scenes with the cheerleaders in the movie. They're actually much more described in the book. There's a character, Cindy Carr, um, and her boyfriend, Greg Adams, who are like the popular kids. And there's much more focus on their perspective. And so the book's kind of these little kind of vignettes that kind of jump around, similar to the movie, but it's much wider in scope. And there's just ridiculous stuff in the book that he talks about, like with you know, the soccer player, Steve Shasta, who's not in the movie at all. There's a Rick Shasta who's referred to um, when uh, in the scene where Damone is trying to get money from the people he sold tickets to to help pay for Stacey's abortion. We'll get more into that. But they're not in the movie. There's references to them and the cheerleader, like Greg Adams and Cindy Carr are in the movie, but they're just referred to, you know, barely at all. Um, and but the book just has so much exaggeration and it just doesn't seem, even though some of the scenes seem real, I just think about what he's saying he did, right? He went undercover and he's getting all this information from people. Like he's just going up to kids and interviewing them. I mean, and they're telling him this stuff about masturbating and abort I, I just don't see that happening. Yeah. Right. I think a lot of this is cut from whole cloth. I mean, maybe he did do the undercover thing. I think a much more interesting book, would have been a nonfiction book with him in it, actually interviewing the kids and talking about what he's seeing, but he made it into this fictional book. And the book is all, like I mentioned, the book has been completely overshadowed by the film and it's out of print for being such a, you know, if you think about this idea of a kid going undercover like this, this should be a landmark work of journalism. You know, it should stand up with his rock criticism and it really does. Yeah, it's it's like good. he's made this fictional book. And I think a lot of it is made up. Yeah. Even though he gets to some emotional truths and, you know, he nails some of the, the you know, like the whole characterization of Spicoli. But I would argue that Amy Heckerling and the actors are as much responsible for what works in this movie as Cameron Crowe. Because even though it's a, a tight script, I, I wonder how he was influenced to change certain things in the book. Um, one thing in the book that's, and by the way, the original title of the book was going to be Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> but they convinced him not to do that. And the other thing, 
uh, is that Jan Wenner, who was the editor of Rolling Stone, who was kind of a mentor to Cameron Crowe, was really butthurt that Cameron Crowe did not involve him in this yeah. uh, publishing of the book. He he kind of just went over to Simon and Schuster of his own accord. But Jan Wenner really wanted to get into more media. He wanted to get into movies and books, and he saw this as an opportunity to expand his empire. And he was totally butthurt, so much so that as Rolling Stone would do retrospectives and anthologies over the next, you know, couple uh, over the next 10 or 12 years, Cameron Crowe, even though he was a major, like I mentioned, how much of a major writer he was for Rolling Stone, he was completely excluded from those things. Well, he can join and it was good only company he, like Rush and a ton of other cool bands who were- Right, right. He but he, you know, kind of when he became a filmmaker of some note, you know, that band was sort of lifted as Jan Winner saw the opportunity to kind of hook, hitch himself to a star as, you know, Cameron Crowe made singles and Jerry Maguire, which was even nominated for a Best Picture, became this major filmmaker. Then then that kind of band was softly lifted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as far as the book goes, though, um, uh you know, many of the of the of the scenes in the book are the same. I mentioned that some are are different. One major change that I think was really crucial to the screenplay working is that Mike Damone is actually a composite of two different characters. One is the actual Mike Damone character in the book, and the other is the ticket scalper. So the ticket scalper was referred to in the book several times, but he's not a major character. These were actually two different things. But making Mike Damone the ticket scalper really rounds out the character and makes him one of the best characters in the movie. I don't think he would be as good without those scenes where, like, he's trying to convince the woman to buy the cheap trick tickets right. and singing all the songs. And, uh, you know, he's just such an amazing original character. Again, not very realistic. I don't think, I you know, a ticket scalper at a high school, I just don't see that happening. I agree. Right? It's him being able to get the here. connections yeah. to get those tickets. Yeah, like college, I could see but it's still a fun character and it, it ties in a lot of the musical culture into the film. And, you know, the musical references are well done because Cameron Crowe knew his shit, right. He'd written for a decade, you know, almost on music. Um, also in the book, you know, Brad actually works at Carl's jr, like a real fast food place. And then later he gets a job at Jack in a box and some of, uh, you know, so, but I think the movie actually made this better because when he gets a, what is it? Captain hooks. The, the fish place. It was like, it was like a Long John Silver a copy. I forget the name of it. It was a Long John Silver or uh, H, H, and, H and R, what? Salt, fish yeah, and chips, yeah, whatever yeah. that place was. Yeah. But yeah, I think Long John Silver because the pirate, because if you don't have the pirate outfit, it's just not the same, right? I mean, I think, so I think the book, the screenplay improved on that. Um, Now, as far as the original film, when they decided to, to make it, um, they originally wanted to choose David Lynch. <laughs> Uh, and it was funny because Amy Heckerling, who was eventually chosen, was always going around talking about Eraserhead. Yeah. She was she was always saying how great a movie Eraserhead was. And, you know, David Lynch had such an, an impact with Eraserhead. I mean, that's why Mel Brooks told, chose him to run, you know, direct the Elephant Man. And they sent the screenplay to David Lynch. And he's like, yeah, he's a good screenplay. It's funny, but there's no way this is my wheelhouse. Right. You know, that would have just been bizarre. Uh, <laughs> you know, would not have worked. Um, but. Uh, Cameron Crowe saw a short film um, or the producer and Cameron Crowe. So it was produced by a producer named Art Linson. And they saw a short film by a young director named Amy Heckerling. And they chose her. And I think this was a crucial choice because it really strengthens the impact of the female perspective 
Um, and I think Amy Heckerling just nailed it. And, you know, she showed that she was a good director later of high school films with Clueless, which I think is a total classic high school film as well. Um, and, uh, you know, she obviously directed a lot of dubious films, uh, you know, that made her a lot of money, like the Look Who's Talking series later. But, you know, this is probably her greatest film and she did a bang up job. Right. Yep. Um, so let's uh, and what's interesting is. Um, you know, obviously the film has some explicit sex scenes and it was actually originally given an X rating. We talked about this with the, the Phantasm series, right? Yeah. That films were often given an X rating. They had to cut them down. So they had to cut down the length of uh, uh, the Damone and Stacy sex scene, which we'll talk about more in detail when we when we get to the plot. Um, now let's talk about the uh, soundtrack. What do you think about the soundtrack, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> well, other than Quarter Flash, it's not great. I, I mean, the... the um, <laughs> Okay, so there's a couple highlights on it. I mean, we played Somebody's Baby. Obviously, that's famous in this movie. Um, yeah, it was a number two song. Yeah, that's it a, a it's a great, it's a great song. The biggest hit from the soundtrack by far. And I'm a, I'm a huge Jackson Brown fan, so keep, take that into consideration. Obviously, Moving in Stereo was on technically in the movie, but it's not on the soundtrack. A, a classic car song, obviously. We got the beat. There's other things on here, but for the most part, it just seems like it was a, a shill for universal music artists to sell albums and to promote the, the artists that they had. There's throwaway tracks from all sorts of people. Don Felder from the Eagles, Joe Walsh from the Eagles, uh, Don Henley from the Eagles. Uh, Stevie Nicks is on here. Um, Ir Irving Azoff who as the manager of the Eagles was somewhat involved at Universal as a heavy hitter. And that's why a lot of these folks are in there. For the most part, um, it, it was Jimmy Buffett's on the soundtrack as well. The, you know, there, there, there's all sorts of things on here. It's not great. Um, I don't know if I hate it quite as much as you, but it, it's certainly not anything worthwhile. You know the songs um, that you should know. And the ones you remember are actually the good songs that are the ones we just talked about, the Moving in stereos, the somebody's baby, the um, so forth and so on. So what do you? Yeah, I mean, my opinion is that some of the best songs aren't on the soundtrack, right? You have uh, Moving in Stereo, you have American Girl by Tom course, Petty. You have We yeah. Got the Beat opens the film, which is perfect for the the whole mall scene. Yeah. You know, it's a uh, it it's really strange that some of the best songs aren't on the on the album. Originally, they wanted to open the song with. Uh, uh, the song raised on the rate open the movie with the song raised on the radio by the Ravens. Yeah. You know, that's a one non hit wonder if there ever was one, they actually used that song when Brad's later, you know, lovingly washing his uh, vintage car that he's uh, got with his hard earned fast food money. But um, yeah, the, the studio di didn't realize that the go-go song was like a, you know, this major song that was a major hit. And even Jackson Brown, I think the use of somebody's baby is interesting in this film. It's actually really good and it's a catchy song. But, you know, this is not the kind of music that kids in 1982 would be listening to. Yeah. You know, maybe Stevie Nicks. I mean, Belladonna was a massive record. And the, the use of the Stevie Nicks song isn't bad. But I mean, like Don Felder and even like this oldies cover, So In Love by Timothy B. Schmidt. I mean, it's just garbage, yeah. right? And when they do get it right, they have like, uh, you know, Billy Squire and Sammy Hagar, who definitely be popular with kids this age. The songs are just terrible, right? They're these B-rate. They're actually both, uh, you know, songs that are themes written specifically for the film. Fast Times at Ridgemont High by Sammy Hagar and Fast Times by Billy Squire. And they're just not catchy at all. 
you know, they're not really good songs. I think the one, one of the bright spots of the, of the album is uh, Goodbye, Goodbye by Oingo Boingo, which is another song that would have been listened to by at least some of some kids in the movie um, that ends the film. Right. So I, yeah, I think the soundtrack is really weak. Uh, I don't mind the Jimmy Buffett song, which is crazy because I think Jimmy Buffett is one of my least favorite artists of all time, but it, it's Spicoli's theme and it kind of is catchy, yeah. you know, in the background is background music. Um, what's interesting is there is no other soundtrack other than the rock songs in this movie. It doesn't have like an instrumental soundtrack at all, like an orchestral soundtrack at all, uh, which I think actually works well um, because it kind of emphasizes the realism that some of these scenes have. Right. Um, that's basically the history. I mean, we'll, you know, there's more information about who was cast and who auditioned. We'll talk more about that as we talk about those specific characters. I don't know, Jeff, if you wanted to talk about anything else. No, let's get into the the details and I'll feather in a few things um, as we go, as it makes sense. Okay, so normally this would be the section where we kind of each split off and give our evaluations, but we're going to have more of a kind of interactive discussion and talk about things that work and things that don't in the context of the characters' plot lines, right? As I mentioned, this film doesn't have a single plot. It's got several intersecting plots. And we'll do our best to transition. It was really hard to kind of come up with the transitions because there are different interactions. But, um, you know, that's the way we're going to tackle this. And then we'll give our opinions on how well things work and how well things don't. As we mentioned before, we both like this movie a lot. We both think it is very influential and holds up. Uh, but, you know, there's probably some things that don't work. And we'll talk about those as we talk about the um, characters, right, yep. uh, as they relate to the scene. So first off is obviously we mentioned kind of the closest thing to a main character is Stacey Hamilton. And we'll talk about how she interacts with Linda Barrett mostly. Um, but in, interestingly enough, the, the, um, a couple of famous other kind of, you know, we talked about the zeitgeist, the other zeitgeist is the rise of the brat pack, yeah. right? These actors who were all coming of age, uh, in their early, late teens and early twenties in the 1980s who would figure a lot in, you know, movies like St. Elmo's Fire and the, the John Hughes movies in the future. Breakfast Club. So obviously you had, stuff. right, Breakfast Club, et cetera. And you had like uh, a couple of uh, up and coming actresses uh, audition for the part of Stacey, Ali Sheedy and Meg Tilly, right? Yep. But the part was given to Jennifer Jason Leigh, right? And the film opens in the mall, right? And the first scene we see is her interacting with Linda Barrett uh, played by Phoebe Cates, and they're both working at a real restaurant, as Jeff mentioned, he went to many times, Perry's Pizza. That's right. And what's interesting is before the film uh, was shot, Jennifer Jason Leigh actually got a temporary job at Perry's Pizza because she's like a serious method actress. <laughs> you know, we'll talk about method when we talk about Sean Penn, uh, but Jennifer Jason Leigh, I mean, obviously she would become a world-class actress. I mean, she's, she's absolutely amazing in this movie. And, um, you know, so she did her research, which was cool, right? Um, and then, you know, of course, when uh, Phoebe Cates was hired, Jennifer Jason Leigh was completely intimidated by her because she is such a knockout, yeah. right? She was a model. And she was like, how am I going to compete with this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think that's perfect. You know, Linda Barrett is like this, uh, you know, she's more experienced for a reason. It's because she was obviously so attractive. And I think it actually adds to Phoebe Cates's forcefulness in the role that she is intimidating physically in a way. Yeah. You know, uh, it works. And and for a model, 
you know, somebody, I mean, she had a little bit of acting experience, but she was great. I mean, she, she was great in it, yeah. you know, and, and I think there's even a scene um, or the scene we're going to talk about the famous, you know, pool scene um, when it was being filmed, uh, Cameron Crowe, like Phoebe Kate said to Cameron Crowe, like, how did that go? And he's like, yeah, it was really good for a model. You, you know what I mean? And kind of very dismissive of her. Right. And she was, I thought she was fantastic. She has a lot of personality and, you know, I think she's a bright person. You can just kind of tell there's a, a brightness about that. Yeah. She's smart yeah. and she plays it smart. Yeah. I mean, she's, I think she's fantastic in the part. And I, that's one thing that surprised me when I watched the movie again is how good she yeah. is. I think she's dismissed um, she's because of how attractive she, you know, was. Right. Yeah. And because of the, the moving and stereo scene that we'll get yeah. to when we talk about Brad Hamilton, because I see that more as his scene than hers yeah. in many ways, even though, you know, that's not why people rewound the movie. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, so obviously this, you know, this early scene, they're interacting together and they're kind of checking out the guys in the mall and they see, you know, Stacy waits on this hot guy. So we will talk about that, right? Stacy's first uh, major scene. Ron Johnson. With, uh, Ron Johnson, right? <laughs> so it's funny because this is one of the many scenes where we hear anytime Stacy has an awkward love scene, we hear Jackson Brown, somebody's yeah. baby. It's kind of her theme song. <laughs> and it's kind of creepy in a way because I also almost think this guy looks like Jackson Brown. He's got that Jackson Brown hair. It's almost like a Jackson Brown is having sex with uh, Stacy. And it's really in a way, this scene is probably the most controversial scene. Uh, uh, well, there's plenty of controversy, right? But this is one of the most controversial scenes because he's so much older and he looks so much older. Yeah. I mean, this guy looks like he's 30. But the actor was you know? actually only 20, a year older than Jennifer Jason. Wow, well, I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't know that because he looks really a lot older. He does. I mean, part of that is his kind of seven, late 70s yeah. disco fashion. So he's got this leather jacket that she compliments and, him and on. And he worked at, in the mall, of course, at Pacific Stereo, which was actually a real stereo store. But I don't actually think it was um, at the mall, at Gallery at the time. It oh, might okay. have been. But I don't actually think it was. I, I might have that wrong. But um, Pacific Stereo was an actual, like, one of those stereo stores. You know, you didn't buy your stereos at, like, you know, Best Buy or whatever, you know, at least for the mainstream ones. Um, they're, they're, you bought them at, like, these stereo stores with your little hi-fis and, you know, stuff like that. So, anyway. So, she arranged... It's funny, too, because I'll talk about Mark Ratner, but this guy, he he has a a very awkward way of asking her out. Like he basically orders from the menu and he says, and your phone number. And it's funny because that has a parallel with the scene with her and Mark Ratner that I, I think Mark is just, I don't think he's any more awkward than this guy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really goofy and awkward, but he's, you know, she, he's attractive to her. And so they end up going out on a date and, well, um, kind you of. know, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> I, yeah. It's kind of a date. Of a date. <laughs> It, well, it's kind of a date rape, I guess, you know, being that he she's supposedly the character is 15 yeah. and uh, well, she does you know, tell him statutory rape. You know, but she does tell him that she's 19 and he asked her a couple right. of times and she lies both times. So, you know. Yeah. And and I think that's realistic. Yeah. Because I, I mean, we all knew I knew girls like I this uh, girl who lived next door to my dad and I'm to beach Stacy. She dated when she was like um, in high school, just in high school, and she was a few years younger than me. Um, she dated this guy who was like 22. Yeah. You know, so it was like she was like 16 and 20. This was really common. Yeah. Um, and Linda Barrett, of course, is dating a college age guy. So this whole idea that 
you know, guys over, over 20 would date high school girls. It seems so creepy to us now, but it happened all the fucking time. Like it was the norm. Yeah. Right. Um, and so they go to this place called the point, which is basically like a baseball dugout at a, at a, like a little league park yeah. or something. Or I don't know if it's a high school. I don't know why this is the point. When I think of the point, I always think of some kind of mountain mountainous area or some kind of area in a park that people park to like maybe yeah the point which would have some kind of view but this is this seedy graffiti ridden baseball dugout i mean it's such a dark scene in a way yeah right um and uh yeah i mean did you want to talk about uh the setting a little more no i mean you, you covered it i i think it was probably chosen visually so her attention could be focused you know via the camera cuts on the setting versus the, you know, unsettling uh, scene that was unfolding while she is kind of having sex on, basically. She's not really participating much. She's very, he's very aggressive and she's very passive. But the the thing about this movie too, is we could have played a clip of this, but one of the things you can't get in the scenes with Jennifer Jason Lee is her facial expressions are like 80% of her acting. So if you have an audio clip, it doesn't really capture how amazing she is in this performance. I mean, she is in her face. You can see the mixture of excitement, uh, anticipation and pure terror all at once. I mean, she is overwhelmed with this. She's like half aroused, half interested, uh, but afraid at the same time. And it all is captured in her expression. Which is probably all and realistic, just, you know? I mean, that's what yeah, made it so powerful. This scene is so jarringly real yeah. uh, that it's actually kind of weird to watch it in the context of this film. Because so far, the film hasn't had a lot of comedy, right? There's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of comedy in the uh, no shirt, no shoes, no dice, which I believe comes before this, but I could be wrong. You know, it's tough tough to rearrange the scenes in my mind because, again, it's kind of going from this character to that character to this character. There is some, oh, well, there is the scene at the high school um, where it's chaos, right? right. Where, where people are throwing toilet, toilet paper around. It's route, the opening uh, scene, at, yeah. Right, it's, it's the opening scene after the mall. The mall is first, yeah. and then it cuts to this high school scene uh, before she goes on the date with the guy, and there's, like, a guy being wrapped, there, there's people wrapping another person in toilet paper, like a mummy. There's like, uh, you know, kids doing graffiti on the wall. I mean, there's just chaos. Pinning a at note the high on, I'm a homo sign on somebody's right. back, you know? Yeah. There's some, there's some not politically correct kind of, uh, uh, gay slurs in this movie, as we'll talk about, that's the first one. And there's another one with Spicoli later. Um, but that was kind of what people did. Yeah. It was part you know, of it's the, accurate. It's part of the time yeah. for sure. I'll talk about that more later. Right. So, you know, we have Stacy has this scene and she later meets up with Linda and talks about how it hurts so bad, which is, you know, it's her first time and it's just painful. But she was still kind of like sexually curious and wanted to experiment more. And this is kind of her plot trajectory. So that leads to a, another scene, which I think you wanted to talk about, where Linda gives Stacy some uh sexual advice and instruction. Yeah, I I do. But before that, I want to refer to another deleted scene. Um, And if you're really a scholar of this movie, which we're at least pseudo scholars here, you'll find that there's like about 20, 
25 different deleted scenes. You can find them on YouTube. And one of the deleted scenes was Stacy calling Linda to tell her of her adventures uh, with Ron Johnson and saying that she had lost her virginity. And, and uh, yeah. And so they, they, um, you know, and Linda was just like, Hey, congratulations, you know, and you could just see it again in, in, in uh, Stacy's face that she's just like, yeah, great. Uh, You know, like it wasn't what she had anticipated or had hoped. And she was a little disappointed, but it was sort of like a milestone, um, you know, on her checklist, right? Like, so Stacy is, um, she's driving a lot of behaviors um, that she thinks she's supposed to be doing. And that kind of gets into the scene about the play. Yeah. And she really wants to be like Linda. She wants to be like, like she Linda. looks up Linda as, as, as the wise mentor. That's right. You know, That's right. So the scene I'm about to play actually is a continuation uh, right after the scene we played in the uh, last episode, actually with uh, Pat Benatar, about all the girls at Ridgemont who look like Pat Benatar. But this is, I'll play it here. So here we go. I mean, better in bed. Either do it or you don't. No. They're like variables that I might not be good at. Like what variables? Like, you know, giving blowjobs. What's the big deal? I never did it. You've never given a blowjob? Never? Stace, there's nothing to it. It's so easy. Come on. Go check it out. Relax your throat muscles. Don't bite. Slide it in. So for those who uh, may not recall the scene, they're sitting at, the, at a, a table in the cafeteria during lunch. Um, uh, Linda is uh, helping Stacy develop her technique, as it were, with a carrot. And they're being observed very obviously what they were practicing doing, right, by uh, another table across a little what, a place away there by a bunch of teenage boys who are watching this lesson go down and at the end are applauding uh, the, the, the efforts. Um, you know, Obviously, the, a couple things I wanted to say about this is a lot of Stacy's behavior, and we've been talking about this all along, are things that she um, thought she should be doing, you know, as she's now an adult, right? She's 15 and she's now a freshman in high school versus things she wants to be doing. And I, I think by the end of the movie, she sort of realizes that just trying to mimic a lot of the things that she should be doing or that Linda is encouraging her to do or what the or her supposed expectations are not actually good things for her to be doing and gets her into some maybe trouble and goes to some places she doesn't want to go. And by the way, we've talked about this a lot in this podcast with things like in the Dead Kennedys episode about terminal preppy, like a large part of that song is like people like this myth of what you're supposed to do. And you learn these behaviors from others and you imitate the behaviors that you think you're supposed to do. And I think there's a lot of that, and Stacy took from Linda and from just general expectations. Well, 
as an adult, you're supposed to, of course, you're supposed to know how to give a, a blowjob. You're 15. It's like, what? Really? You, you, I, I mean, it, it's it's so weird, but this movie captures a lot of that, right? Yeah, and I think the frankness of just dealing with the whole idea of a blowjob is is crazy and unprecedented. Yeah. I don't think any movie had done that uh, with this age of, you know, like teenagers like this. I mean, obviously, Porky's might have referred to it jokingly, but this is completely serious. Yeah. You know, even though it's funny, right? It's funny that they clap at the end and stuff like that. But it's it's dealt with in such a, and it's also dealt with from a female perspective, which again has never never was done before this. I don't think you could say it was done in a teen uh, movie ever. And there wasn't, and I think that's, you know, I was just gonna say there wasn't access like to porno in every corner of the internet. There was no internet, so like you couldn't observe, you know, in in sort of like educational videos as it were or anything like that that didn't not exist so the fact that that um stacy is asking linda this information it wasn't there's no manual or no evidence of how to do this in movies or videos or online or anything like that or even like um you know sex educational things available on the internet that might be instructive to her somehow she had no idea so she's asking her learned friend, as it were, how to do this, exactly what would have happened, right? And getting bad advice, too, all along the way, which, again, is probably yeah. what would happen. She gets a mixture, and we'll talk about Mark Ratner and, and Mike Damone, which is a parallel, right? They get a mixture of good and bad advice. Right. Some of the advice works in their favor. And as they grow and go through their own experiences. Like the don't bite thing. They, That's good advice. Just have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, um, as they grow and, uh, learn from their experiences, they kind of realize their mentor at the end doesn't really know everything. Right. You know, and I kind of like that. It's just really cool, like really original and really so says so much about growing up and being a teenager in a way that a lot of movies don't get right. Um, and so, you know, let's see into, into Mark and Mike, because you know, after this scene, very close, you know, Mark is going to try to uh, ask uh, Stacy out. So we should talk about Mark and Mike Damone, right? Yep. So um, Mike Damone is this kind of cocky, uh, you know, um, ticket scalper who knows everything. And Mark is kind of his understudy. So the relationship parallels the relationship between Linda and Stacy amazingly well right it's like the other flip side of this as these two characters mark and stacy eventually get together um and uh you know one of the first scenes we see we see them in the mall together and you see him scalping tickets for van halen and blue oyster cult and you know you see him uh you know just kind of giving mark advice about how to act around girls as if he knows everything you know he's like kind of a know-it-all right, right? And then there's another great scene. Uh, I think you wanted to play the scene where they're in Damone's room. Yep, I'll play that here. Uh, play that that establishes this. I'm in love. With a mustache coming in red. Almost precedent. I'm in love. You are a wuss, part wimp and part pussy. What do you mean wuss? This girl is my exact type. All right. Where'd you see her? My biology class. Did you get a number? No. Did you get a name? No, no, it's too soon. It's never too soon, right? I mean, a girl decides how far she's going to let you go in the first five minutes. Well, what am I supposed to do? Go up to this strange girl in my biology class and say, hello, I'd like you to take your clothes off and jump on me? I would. I mean, I can see it all now. This is going to be just like last summer. 
You fell in love with that girl at the photo mat. You bought $40 worth of fucking film, and you never even talked to her. You don't even own a camera. Will you tell me, Mike, what should I do? This is what you do. Start from the minute you walk into biology, guys. I mean, don't just walk in. Don't move across the room. And you don't talk to her. You use your face. You use your body. You use everything. That's what I do. I mean, I just send out this vibe, and I have personally found that women do respond. I mean, something happens. Well, naturally, something happens. I mean, you put the vibe out to 30 million chicks, something is going to happen. That's the idea, man. That's the attitude. The attitude? Yeah, the attitude dictates that you don't care whether she comes, stays, lays, or prays. I mean, whatever happens, your toes are still tapping. Now, when you got that... <laughs> Then you have the attitude. Yeah, so I think that was what you're saying. There's some dubious advice in there, but also some good advice in there about being confident and about, you know, those sorts of things too, right? Right. And we should say that the girl, of course, that Mark is talking about is Stacey Hamilton. Right. And, um, you know, he wants to approach her. And obviously, Damone is kind of giving this advice about just not, you know, being more nonchalant and stuff, which is actually probably true. And I totally remember one of the things I love in this scene is the whole line about how, you know, last summer you went to the photo <laughs> mat and you just bought a bunch of pictures and never talked to her. I could totally relate to that as a kid. Yeah. I, I would totally do shit like that where I would try to like be around the girl, but I would never, never talk to her. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a mixture of, you know, Timon, as we'll find out, is not the most admirable character in many ways. Uh, but that advice is probably true to a large extent. Um, and it's kind of interesting. And then we're in this room, you know, this guy, he's, uh, the, the set decoration is interesting, right? It's a mixture of kind of product placement because it's just every conceivable kind of music. And you and I were talking about this and you're like, it's that thing where every, you know, he likes everything and it makes no sense. Yeah. But at the same time, I would argue that Damone, being a ticket scalper, being in the business, right? Dealing with everything from Blue Oyster Cult to Earth, Wind & Fire to Ario Speedwagon would potentially have all that stuff on his wall as part of his identity, right? He has a picture of like, famous picture by Annie Leibovitz of Pete Townsend with a bloody hand on his face. He's got like Elvis Costello, which which of course Amy Heckerling and Cameron Crowe were, were totally into, so they wanted to put him in there. Um, and... I could see him kind of listening to all this stuff, but his room is crazy because it's all these uh, posters and stuff. And then he's got this weird like motorcycle. I think it's a motorcycle sidecar against the wall. That's just full of boobs. Yeah. Like this is a high school kid living with his parents and he's got, and even in his locker, they show his locker later in one, one scene. And he's got like a Hennessy bottle or something <laughs> in there. You know, right. it's like so crazy. So he's so adult, but again, it's weird too, because Robert Romanus is one of those, uh, actors like Judge Reinhold, he just looks way too old uh, to be a high school kid. But it kind of it kind of works for this mentor role, um, and he's really good. And he's another actor like uh, as we'll talk about with Sean Penn. There was some improvisation, so I'm not exactly sure which scenes were improv. But both uh, in the director's commentary, both Cameron Crowe and Amy, Amy Heckerling do point out that he improv a lot of his stuff which he really embodies this character. I mean, his gestures, everything, and the performance, it's kind of, like you said, he really didn't do anything after this, that actor. 
Um, except go to conventions. Yeah, you were saying, right? Yeah, he well, he'd go to conventions, you know, and and people would pay him to sort of recite his five point plan, which I'll play a clip of in a minute. But yeah, I mean, the other thing I, I want to say about the music is it it's a bizarre. This movie represents a bizarre mix of things, and I do want to point out that people were much more clicked about their music, just like they were in their social circles, right? So. Damone had Rolling Stone's Tattoo You, which had just come out. Um, Elvis Costello, you mentioned. He also had the B-52s, weirdly, on his wall. Devo. Um, and other music in the, in the movie or things that we refer to, a lot of it is product placement. Because remember, the idea that Universal had in greenlighting this was they wanted to sell Universal music artists. So a lot of the featured um, artists were on that label. Debbie Harry. Uh, Pat Benatar was referred to. She was not on Universal, but um, Cheap Trick. Uh, Van Halen, I don't, it was Warner Brothers, very famous. Warner Brothers. Yeah, but keep in mind, like the scene with Licorice Pizza, that's just Licorice Pizza. Yeah. Like there's like records, there's like Barbara Streisand's Emotions album on the right. wall, which was out at the time. There was like, yeah. you know, you see Earth, Wind & Fire rot, raise, but it's like, it was it was just licorice pizza. They were filming at the mall right. and that was what was there. So there's weird stuff like that. But again, I'll argue with Damone. I think he would have all that stuff on as well because he's in the biz music business. He sees himself as a purveyor of, of, of music and he, you know, whether he likes that stuff or not, I think it's just part of his identity to represent all those artists. You Maybe know? it's a little but more it's, it's weird. It's a combination right? it, because again, not all the artists are universal for one thing, like Elvis Costello is on Columbia. Right. right. I mean, I think it was more a way of kind of, he's the rock guy. That's his world. And he covers all, you know, the, you can buy tickets for Devo or you can buy tickets for Aria Speedway. So I think in his case, it makes sense. So it, I think it's a combination of what you're saying where they're just, throwing everything that sticks against the wall like hey a set art director get a bunch of rock yeah exactly and they just put it put it all over the place and overdo it but in his case i think it kind of works because of his uh character right so so as far as the uh you know the relationship between um you know so mark ratner we should talk more about him so he works at the movie theater right he's like this kind of responsible kid kind of a you know shy nerdy afraid to make the first move and that's another thing this movie does is uh mark and stacy um uh you know uh she tends to be more of the aggressive sure, right so yeah. she gets a taste for the sexual experience with her you know ron johnson even though it was a not a very appealing experience and she starts to be wanting to experiment more right so um I guess you wanted to play Damone's uh, five-point plan. Yeah, so let me play that. Let's 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 do that. Look, what do I say? And then we'll talk about the game. The car. No problem, Red. What you need is my special five-point plan. Come on, Damone. I need real help here. What do you mean? Hey, men have died trying to obtain this valuable information, you know. But I'll give it to you for free. Okay. Okay. What's your five-point plan? All right. Now pay attention. First of all, Rat, you never let on how much you like a girl. Oh, Debbie. Hi. Two, you always call the shots. Kiss me. You won't regret it. Now three, act like wherever you are, that's the place to be. Isn't this great? Four. 
When ordering food, you find out what she wants, then order for the ball. It's a classy move. Now, the lady will have the linguine and white clam sauce and a Coke with no ice. And five. Now, this is most important, Rat. When it comes down to making out, whenever possible, put on side one of Led Zeppelin four. This is a nice car. Yeah, it's my sister's. Yeah? Do you have my sister in English? Yeah, yeah, she's pretty good. Yeah, she is pretty good. Awkward small talk, but there you go. Yeah, so we'll talk about the Led Zeppelin song in a minute, but I just want to set this up because, uh, you know, so basically Mark Ratner does, uh, he has this awkward scene where he goes to the mall, you know, he's he's basically going to put Damone's five-point plan into effect right. by asking Stacy out and going out with her. So it's this awkward scene where he goes to the mall and and asks her about lost and found jackets and you know, what do you do with the jackets here? And then he kind of throws in and your phone number. <laughs> and and it's like kind of similar to the um, Ron Johnson. Come on. It's just as dorky, but, you know, it works. And so they, they decide to go on a date and he's going to put this five point plan into effect. Um, what's interesting is during this scene. So it opens with that cashmere, which we'll talk about in a second. Right. Um, what Amy Heckerling did during this whole date sequence is she tried to make the actors look smaller. She talks about this in the commentary. So when they're in the car, they actually had special seats put in so they would be lower. It's kind of a way of showing how innocent they are and awkward. And you could hear the conversation they're having together. It's very awkward, right? right. It's, the conversation is not flowing. They're both nervous and stuff. Um, and, uh, you and know, maybe we should talk about- actual real first date, not like, you know, like right. her Ron Johnson date was just driving to the dugout where, you know, that sex scene happened. And you'll, I'm, you'll t- the thing with Damone you'll talk about in a second wasn't a date either. So this is actually maybe her right. first real date in a sense. Right. So obviously, you know, Damone mentioned Led Zeppelin 4, right? And and this is like a famous gaffe in the movie, right? That Cashmere is not on Led Zeppelin 4. Uh, and the reason is, is they they couldn't get the rights to Led Zeppelin 4. I mean, I, I don't know why. I, I guess Led Zeppelin 4 is Atlantic and uh, Physical Graffiti is Swan Song, yeah. which is completely Led Zeppelin subsidiary. So that's probably why. Um, but Cameron, I mean, even to get the rights of a Led Zeppelin song is pretty rare. Yep. Uh, I think that Cameron Crowe got this, he said, because of his friendship with the band. You know, he was friends with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant from writing, writing in his writing days. And I think it's perfect. Uh, you know, because you could say, even though it's looked upon as a huge, you know, boner of the movie, a huge mistake. Well, it's, it's not like, the only huge you know, boner. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, the, um, uh, but the thing, the thing with this is it's almost like Ratner, like screws this up. You could look at it like, oh, he was supposed to pick Led Zeppelin four, but he picked the wrong album because he's messing up the five point plan, which you'll see there's a series of mistakes he makes during this date. Right. So they, they go to this restaurant. Right. And it's like kind of one of these German 
restaurants. I, I didn't look at and find out where this location was, but, uh, but it's a real place. It almost looks like something that Jim Rockford and the Rockford Files would go to, like one of these old school restaurants. Yeah. And they, they're in these giant chairs and they gave them these giant menus, again, to make them look innocent and small and young. And he, of course, tries to, you know, he orders for her and all this. And of course, he forgets his wallet. Yeah. <laughs> and so he has to call Damone uh, to come get his wallet. And Damone is like a fucking asshole because he's like, I'm busy. And he's just drinking watching some old movie or something right? he's watching leave it um, to beaver actually oh he's watching leave it to beaver so that's more important than his friend yeah. who needs his help tony dow but he ends up showing Houston. up and of course he's you know mr cool and introduces himself to stacy and we get a little bit of chemistry there that will play out maybe later um and another mishap that happens which i think is kind of a weird detail that cameron crow throws in but just to make it more pitiful is his tape deck gets stolen when they're in the restaurant. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a really awkward scene. Um, you know, and obviously he comes home with Stacy and she's very aggressive with him trying to, you know, make out and stuff. And he backs out, he chickens out. kind yeah. of. And when they did test that, screenings yeah. for this movie, the audience was like screaming at him. Yeah. Like they were just like, you idiot. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was the reaction. I think that they were meant to have. Right. Yeah. And it's what's funny is this whole, you know, when I think of this, these, this kind of love triangle between Damone, Ratner, and uh, Stacy, I think of like Cyrano de Bergerac in a weird way, because it's kind of a similar thing where Cyrano is giving this guy advice and eventually the woman falls in love with the guy giving the advice. Uh, because, you know, Mark Ratner is trying to be Damone and failing at being Damone, but Damone obviously is better at being himself. Right. And he's more confident. And so it turns out that Stacy ends up liking him. I mean, there's a scene where she's writing Stacy Damone in her notebook in class, in Mr. Han's class, who we'll talk about in a bit. Um, and then, of course, this comes to maybe one of the most incredible scenes in the movie, which is the sex scene between her and Damone, right? She she kind of sees him and says she likes him and is kind of flirting with him and there's an earlier pool scene, which we'll get to, uh, that kind of sets this up where Mark and Damone go to kind of show up at Stacy's house out of nowhere. And there, and so she's starting to fall for him, you know, because of his super cool cocky attitude, yeah. I guess. And this leads into the, the sex scene with Damone. Yeah. So obviously uh, this is a pretty famous scene for its starkness, realism, and, and awkwardness, right? Where uh, Damone uh, sees Stacy at school, something like, uh, hey, um, Mark really likes you, you know, that kind of thing. He's trying to at least, you know, pump up his friend there a little bit. Winds up through a series of dialogue, you know, at Stacy's house uh, to, to go swimming and to have iced tea, apparently. Stacy changes it where she says, hey, you want to go swimming? Uh he doesn't have any, uh, you know, swim uh, paraphernalia. She's like, oh, yeah, my brother has some swim trunks you can borrow out in the little pool cabana. And uh, that leads to a, a incredibly awkward uh, and probably pretty horrible sex scene in some regard where, you know, Stacy's basically just like, yeah, let's get down. And Damone's for it. Uh, you know, the sex scene lasts all of about a half a second. Which, which maybe is realistic uh, in that situation too, right? And it's very stark when they undress 
and it was cut. I think you want to talk about how that scene was. Like, yeah, it's edited. cut because this this was the scene that got the X rating right. because it lasted longer. And there was this whole comical thing. And this is from directly from the book where their kind of heads are banging against the wall. It was meant to make add some light comedy to the scene. Yeah. I actually think it's better cut because I think it's better as abrupt and rushed as it is yeah. crazy. I think it's actually better because obviously Damone realizes he's fucked up. Yeah. He feels bad for what he did. Um, and he's, he's, he, he, you know, he does it because he's attracted to her or whatever. But what's really interesting about the scene is her. Yeah. Because she is now completely comfortable with her nakedness. She's just laying there naked. And there's a shot of her after the scene. And she's kind of like, you know, like not wanting him to go, but at the same time, kind of not shy about her sexuality at this point. It's a huge contrast between this and her scene with Ron Johnson, where she's kind of the passive person. She's much more of the aggressor in the scene. Um, And she's trying to get more sexual experience. And I think it's really a powerful scene that really stands out in the film. And it's a betrayal, right? Because uh, you know, I don't expect Stacy to have any loyalty to, to Mark. They went on one date and he kind of, she, he had his chance, yeah. right? I mean, she, she came on to him, she was into him and he rejected her advances mainly out of nervousness, yeah. right? And insecurity. So I don't feel anything like she's betraying anything, but she may but not have understood Mike, that even like she may have felt like he offended or like she wasn't, he wasn't that into her. Because he like, right. like she might not have had the maturity and experience like, oh, this poor guy was terrified. And, you know, Rhett- there's a deleted scene where she says Mark Ratner has no interest in. Yeah, me. she actually it's I think it's one of the scenes where they're putting on the makeup. Yeah, uh, they're putting on like this facial cream, uh, her and Linda talking together or it might have been a phone scene. There's a couple of scenes of them together talking about more about Mark Ratner. And that are deleted. And that's one of them where she says, Mark Ratner has no interest in me. I think it would have been cool to have that in the film, but I think it's implied anyway, that she kind of felt like he wasn't into her um, when he was really just kind of in over his head and nervous about the whole thing. He still liked her, but, but Mike knows Mark's feelings. And like you said, he repeats several times at the beginning of that sex scene before they start taking up, you know, Mark really likes you. Mark really likes you. Um, And he says that even as they're walking together and she says, yeah, but I think I like you. Yeah. And he kind of can't resist that, you know? Yeah. And I, I think we're led to believe that he's less experienced than he lets on. Uh, I mean, the scene is awkward and fast and, you know, he's like, I think I came, <laughs> which implies he didn't really know what that was, you know? Um, so did you feel it? So this of course pans out to one of the most serious things the movie does, which is that Stacy ends up getting pregnant by him. And she goes to get uh, him to not only drive her to the clinic, but to pay for half of the abortion. And he just brushes her off. I think he just wants to forget the whole thing happened. You know, he's trying to sell cheap trick tickets to this girl. And he's doing all the, I wonder if this was improvised of him doing all the songs like Surrender and stuff. Dream Police. Um, Dream Police and stuff. And Robin Zander. It's interesting, a fun fact, uh, in the book, you know, in the movie, there's that whole scene that we played at the beginning of our Pat Benatar episode where they're talking about all the Pat Benatar lookalikes. That's not in the book. In the book, he's talking about these boys who are all Robin Zander lookalikes. Yeah. I think he did the right thing by converting it to Pat Benatar, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think that's much but better. You but you talked about the thing. Robin Zander lookalikes in our Cheap Trek episode, actually. 
Yeah, I mean, there definitely was a thing where there were Robin Zander lookalikes. I just don't think it plays as well cinematically because it's really just like a blonde guy yeah. with long hair, whereas Pat Benatar, it's a whole outfit, right? It's a hairstyle, but then it's, it's a whole kind of, you know, certain style of dress. And I think it just works better visually, but that's just kind of a side thing. So he, um, you know, obviously they, you know, she needs to get an abortion and you see scenes of him trying to get money to pay for the abortion. He's trying to do the right thing, but I think he should have just showed up anyway and told her he would, I mean, so he never shows up and she ends up having to take the bus, but her brother comes in and we'll talk about Brad Hamilton's relationship with her more. Um, and kind of saves the day by uh no she you know, actually she doesn't take the bus oh, she does take the bus and he picks her up no she doesn't right? take the bus she um asks brad for a ride to a friend or to meet a friend oh yeah yeah, yeah. to the bowling to alley. the bowling alley. sorry yeah to she says i'm gonna go bowling with friends and then he sees her run across the street yeah and he knows where she's going he can see where she's going right yeah. right right sorry um yeah and of course this results in a um, you know, her telling Linda that Damone didn't show up, that he didn't pay for the abortion. And she wreaks revenge on him by writing like little what little prick on his car yeah, and, and locker, locker yeah. prick on the car, little prick on the locker. Yes, technically. And that I should note, this is something I should have said at the beginning. If you want to watch this movie as of uh, July, end of July 2022, when we're recording this, do not watch the streaming version uh, on Amazon. Um, I'm not sure about YouTube or other places where you can stream this, uh, but definitely do not rent this on Amazon because this all this uh, scene about Linda uh, reacting to the news that Damone doesn't pay for the abortion and the retaliation she instigates, um, that is not in the movie. They cut that out uh, for whatever reason. Um, and you can find on Amazon, I looked at this on amazon.com to read the reviews and people commented on this. There are several other scenes that are missing. I forget which ones. Uh, there's a Criterion Collection version of this movie. I just ordered it and came last night. I haven't watched the Blu-ray yet. I had the DVD, so I was able to watch it again that way. Um, but I got it on Blu-ray just because I loved it so much and I saw that it was Criterion. And this definitely deserves a Criterion, um, I think. But but basically, I would recommend getting the Criterion Blu-ray and watching it that way and not streaming if you don't have any other way to watch it. Uh, as of this, hopefully they'll correct that. But there's no reason to remove those scenes. They actually are very important to the film because Mark and Mike actually get into a locker room fight over this whole thing, too. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. And, and it's it's kind of awkward how they make up later in the movie, but they do. Um, that's kind of interesting, but I also loved how vengeful, uh, Phoebe Cates is, uh, <laughs> she's, her character is not, you know, not someone you'd want to F with, Yeah, you know, she's, she's kind of a badass in a way. Yep. Okay. So Brad, let's talk about Brad Hamilton. Okay. So we talk about Brad Hamilton, sort of the elder statesman of the film in more ways than one. Because Judge Reinhold uh, looks really old. Yeah. <laughs> he looks his age and then some, right? Yeah. Um, so originally, uh, you know, Nick Cage actually uh, auditioned for the part of Brad. Um, and I gather he was pretty good because, you know, he's fucking Nicolas Cage, you know. Uh, but he was only 17 at the time, so they couldn't possibly choose him because he would 
you know, there was this whole thing of they could only shoot characters under 18 a certain amount of hours per day, and they wanted more time with Brad. Yep. Um, and I also think he probably at 17 was too young to be convincing as her older brother. Um, so they chose Judge Reinhold was a friend of Amy Heckerling's who lived in the same apartment building as her and was dating one of her friends. And he auditioned and they ended up going with him. And I think even though he looks way too old for the part, he's a good choice. You know, he does come off as, um, you know, he's good in the funny scenes and he's actually convincing in his part. Yeah. Um, so Brad is Stacy Hamilton's older brother and he runs around, you know, he's very proud of his fast food jobs. And that's kind of mostly where the plot around him revolves. But he also has this longstanding girlfriend who I gather from many implied, I think she isn't putting out is basically the problem, right? Um, he is, he wants to have sex with her and she won't put out. Well, um, and he's also, but she yeah. also tells him that she doesn't want to use sex as a tool, Bradley, in one of the scenes too. So maybe there's some contention about that particular aspect. Right, right. You know, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, it's, it's also there kind of, it's implied they're drifting apart anyway, because as he's thinking about breaking up with her, she actually breaks up with him yeah. first. And this leads to this downward spiral. You know, he's, there's this great scene where he's in front of a, a mirror and he's rehearsing his speech to her about why they should see other people. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's in, one of his very self-highly regarded fast food jobs at All-American Burger. He's in the bathroom, this really gross, dirty fucking bathroom at All-American Burger. As it would be in real life. Completely accurate. (laughs) And he's sitting there rehearsing his breakup that he's going to do with his girlfriend, Lisa, while he's washing off graffiti on the mirror that says, Big Hairy Pussy. (laughs) Which is brilliant yeah. like whoever came that's up a, with that's that a brilliant set piece is, is, yeah. is amazing because that's exactly what he'd be doing or even grosser stuff than that but he's sitting there washing graffiti off and rehearsing how he's going to uh break up with his girlfriend saying how successful he is how saying like you know you know what a stud he is and he needs his freedom now because you know they've been together a long time and all that kind of stuff and as slip said uh, you know, this she breaks up with him before he can even do that, and that you know is part of his uh, down downward spiral. So, you know, he's really into these fast food jobs, but I, you know, it, it's weird because you wouldn't like these days. I don't know, kids seem to have a completely uh, different attitude about these things. But you were going to talk about your friends who worked at Disneyland, right? Right, right. But before that, I'm going to talk about. There's no different attitude. Fast food jobs were the shit jobs. Yeah. I mean, you wanted to work in a movie theater. You wanted to work at like the warehouse or Music Plus. You know, you didn't want to work in fast food. And I did. I worked at Pizza Hut, which is fucking fast food. Yeah. You know, everything was was pre-measured and pre-packaged. And it sucked. You'd come home smelling like fucking pizza dough and tomato sauce yeah. and fucking did this terrible like dishwashing, toxic dishwashing liquor. We have to, used to have to wash dishes. I would come home all sweaty and smelly. It sucked, yeah. right? It's weird that he he looks at it, but it, there is something about having your first job and having money um, because that contrasts with, uh, you know, Spicoli, as we'll talk about. We're saving the best for last. We're going to cover Jeff Spicoli last. Uh, but that contrasts with him. He never has any money, right? He says at the beginning of the scene when they're trying to get fast food at uh, Brad's restaurant, All-American Burger, he's all, I've got one nickel, right? <laughs> 
And there's later a scene at a 7-Eleven at the final scene where Brad does interact with Spicoli again. Uh, it's like a 7-Eleven. I think it's a 7-Eleven. Mini T-Mart, he works actually. There. Oh, okay. There you go. So it's another kind of, uh, you know, uh, 7-Eleven-like liquor store, right? And he's, Spicoli is like fishing through lint in his pocket to find loose change to buy whatever he's going to buy, yeah. right? So, um but there is some pride Brad has, and he hangs around with this crew. Nicholas Cage is one, and they all wear these trucker hats. Again, I don't know where that came from. That's in the book as well. So maybe that was something he observed at the high school, uh, Cameron Crowe observed at the high school. Um, he's also very proud of the car he was able to buy. And I had a friend who worked at Disney. So where I where I lived in Orange County, I lived in a town called Placentia. It was like just a five miles away from Disneyland. So Disneyland was the job you wanted. Disneyland had like benefits. It had like a uh, great pay. You got way more money and it was kind of a prestige job. And my friend Steve worked there and he was actually able to buy like a really hot car, a Plymouth Firebird that he drove all around. And he got, you know, he started to get girls interested in him and stuff. So it was a really good job for him. And he worked there for like 15 years, you know, into his thirties and just was like a part of the cleanup crew. But it, but it was like, he made so much money yeah. and he just lived with his parents. And later he would move to Colorado and, you know, he got a job as like in real estate and he does other stuff now. But but basically, yeah, he uh, he worked at Disneyland for like into his adulthood because it was such a good yeah. job. You know, and I have family members who work there, too. So that was the job you wanted. Um, but in this move, in this film, you know, obviously the fast food job, all American burger has some prestige. We mentioned the kind of side character, Arnold, uh, who wants to get a job there. And, you know, uh, Brad is, I'll talk to Dennis Taylor, you know, the manager, like he's super into his, uh, his status as one of the senior employees. And he's like the main guy who takes pride in his French fries, right? He dumps some fries out at the beginning and gets yelled at for that because they're perfectly good fries. But Brad says, they're not mine. Right. Um, that may have been, del- I don't remember if that was in the movie or was deleted scene, but that, no, but I played it takes that a lot at the pride, beginning right? where he said, I shall serve no fries before their time. Right. Yeah. Right. The, the riff on the Orson Welles wine commercial. Right. So, um, and Brad, you know, we see a little bit of his musical influence, which is Bruce Springsteen. He has a bumper sticker of Springsteen on his car. There's no Bruce Springsteen in the movie. And in the last scene, when he's working at the, uh, the, uh, whatever that market, mini T-Mart, mini t-mart he's wearing like a, a bruce springsteen t-shirt that's i've never seen before it's kind of cool he's got a jersey devil bruce springsteen wearing a shirt that says jersey devil on it i've never seen that that was kind of a cool shirt um so he gets fired from all american burger did you have a clip of this or not yeah i, I have mixed it right up here it. okay yeah let's let's play the clip of his firing from all american burger lisa I have something to tell you. Look, I'm a senior now. I'm a single successful guy. And I've got to be fair to myself, Lisa. I think I need my freedom. Oh, don't do that. Please, please don't Brad, do that. Can you cover me and register to him? Okay. May I help you? Uh, yes. This is not the best breakfast I ever ate, and I'd like my money back. 
Okay, uh, I believe you have to fill out a form for that. Uh, no, I'd like my money back now. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You see, I have to fill out a form and, well, you ate most of it already, so... You see that sign? It says 100% guaranteed. You know what the meaning of guarantee is? Do they teach you that here? Sir, if you just wait a minute. Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. Sir, if you just give me a minute, I'll find the forms. I'll take care of everything. I don't have a minute. You've made me late enough. I am so tired of dealing with incompetence. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. <laughs> That's an amazing scene. So he gets fired right after that by yeah. Dennis Taylor, comes out and fires him. This, you know, and of course he had rehearsed that. That was also the speech we talked about where he's rehearsing his breakup with Lisa right. very soon at, at a pep rally. Lisa dumps him. Yeah. And so now he's on this staff and then he gets a job at this kind of fish and chips, uh, you know, uh, Long John Silver's kind of Captain place Hook. where he has to yeah, cap- Captain yeah. Hook. We, he has to wear this goofy uniform with this hat. Right. And he's, um, you know, he's he's definitely on the downward spiral. Right. And he ends up quitting that job in frustration when he's driving and he's kind of smiling at a woman in a car who is played by Nancy Wilson, Nancy Wilson yeah. who would later become Cameron Crowe's wife yeah. for many years. Of heart, by um, the way. You don't of heart. Know. Right. Nancy Wilson of heart. Um, and so he's on this kind of downward spiral. So he comes home. Uh, from that experience in the pirate outfit and he's walking by, you know, uh, through the backyard and that's where Stacy, Linda, Damone and uh, Ratner are having a little, you know, afternoon pool party. Right. Um, and he's kind of walking and, and, and he sees Phoebe Cates and Phoebe Cates kind of remarks, oh yeah, he looks so sad. So he's on this downward spiral. So he kind of decides he needs a little cheering up, <laughs> um, <laughs> a little self-love. He needs to give himself some, some self-care. Um, so this leads to, uh, you know, the most famous scene of this film. It's the elephant in the room. We have to talk about it. So, Jeff, why don't you continue with uh, what happens next? So he goes He goes into the bathroom um, of the house and he opens a window where he sees Phoebe Cates actually just sitting on the diving board completely just hanging out, not, de- you know, realizing she's being watched, not trying to impress anybody or anything. She's just kind of like slumped over and she's just, just hanging out, just minding her own business. And he sees her. And he starts thinking, um, maybe knowing how attractive she is, like he might want to, uh, you know, roll a little movie in his head of the scene that he wished was unfolding um, as he uh, started uh, to pleasure himself. So he's he's observing her and I think he closes the window and starts to play the movie in his head where Phoebe Cates jumps off the diving board, comes up out of the water. And then, as you heard in the beginning opening of the show, talks about how cute she thought he always was, which... uh, the is, scene is played out where she uh, uh, starts walking towards him and very excitedly pulls off her uh, bikini top, embraces and starts uh, kissing him. And he's using this uh, like the visual mental uh, uh, playback track uh, as he's uh, actively uh, having a wank there. Right. So, yeah, he's he's fucking <laughs> as the song, as the lyrics go and moving in stereo, he's pretty much shaking his tremble. Yeah. Right <laughs> And uh, what's cool about the fantasy sequences, where she comes up and kisses him, he's wearing like this fancy suit. Right. I'm looking. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. And okay, so 
a couple of things about this. So, so he's he's having a wake there. You heard in the opening clip that uh, the real scenario that's actually happening is uh, Linda, you know, dives into the pool. She gets water in her ear, and she is in search of a Q-tip. Goes into the house, and you know, goes to the bathroom where she, you know, surmises the Q-tips might be probably pretty reasonably. Um, there's a closed door that she just opens, which, you know, I mean, Hamilton has a point that she doesn't even fucking knock anymore. She just opens it and then she catches him, uh, uh, masturbating and reacts to that with, obviously you can't hear it, but this hor- horrified look on her face. Now, a couple things about that. Number one, it was a real look of horror because Judge Reinhold, when he's filming the scene, brought a prop to the set that day, which was a giant dildo that he was uh, using to, uh, you know, uh, mime his, his his wank, as it were. And Phoebe Cates did not know this. Nobody knew this. And she came in and she saw him and she's like looking over her shoulder at what he's doing. She saw sees him, you know, jerking off this giant dildo, which she recoils. The whole tableau must have been something that was just beyond her, you know, comprehension. And she kind of like ho- covers her mouth in disgust and runs out. And then you heard her facial expression is amazing. And that's because it was real. Yeah, it was real. Right. I mean, her surprise was real. And it's like the best acting, like because it's a real reaction. It's a real reaction. Really looks- so anyway, that's the most famous scene. He gets caught feeding off. He says, as you heard, that, that doesn't anyone fucking knock anymore. But he's like, hey, just a minute when he hears her coming in, it's like all perfectly acted and, and staged and all that. And Obviously, so my reaction to this scene yeah. is different than everyone else's, right? Because so, we were talking about. So this. let's talk about everybody else's first, right? So all right, everybody else, like they uh, in Stranger Things, they even make a joke about how this is the most, you know, the, the tape was uh, paused at this scene where Phoebe Cates, you know, takes off her top. It's a joke about, you know, it's kind of the urban legend that all well, the, the videotape copies. Amy Hackerling talks about this, too, in the director's commentary. She says this scene in rented VHS tapes has tracking problems because of all the rewinds. Exactly. So there's a lot um, of horny dudes do. watching this yeah. and, and recreating the scene, as it were. Uh, maybe this is like a Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, show kind of thing where people are acting along with the with the scene and, and, and mimicking <laughs> Brad's <laughs> actions there, right? Uh, in real yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. But, but so your your reaction to this, so a lot of people found this very titillating, as it were, and, and, and yeah. a turn on. And obviously, Phoebe Cates is very beautiful as as, as Brad. Right, Bruce. the topless part is the part people think about. Right. When I think about it, I think about, holy shit, he got caught. <laughs> to me, this is a horror, horror scene. Because I thought every time I would go in the bathroom and, you know, Let's just spoiler alert. I did maybe have my share of Brad, uh, you know, style masturbation. Shaking your tremolo, as it were. Shaking my tremolo. I thought, holy shit, that scene. You know, it's like <laughs> he got caught. And not only did he get caught, but he got caught by the object of his desire. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there is a world in which maybe Brad, you know, he's slightly older. He's not a bad looking guy. Maybe he could have gotten Linda. That's all over. Yeah. Once once she catches him, that's all over. And you you see how nasty she is and how vindictive she is in the scene earlier with the little prick and prick. You just wonder if this is gonna be all over the school. You know, I think I think it's it's implied that it's not gonna be, but it's like to me, I look at this as an absolute scene of terror. Yeah. I don't I don't look at it as an arousal. I just think about 
him getting caught, or at least I did. Now I, you know, I, I look at it, you know, just as a great scene and a memorable sequence. And, and it's also cool because it dealt with masturbation in a way with the anxiety of getting caught, yeah. which is on everybody's mind when they were doing it as a kid, because you never told anybody you did this. You know, there's all these weird English movies where guys are having circle jerks, these weird, ugh, gross kind of scenes you hear about in boys schools and shit. It's like, no, everybody at my school was doing it, but everybody was saying they weren't. Mm. Right. I mean, it was like never something you admitted. So it was mortifying to me to watch this scene because I thought, oh, what if that happened to me? Yeah. You know, <laughs> well, the thing that anyway, Linda, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. The thing that Linda didn't know, probably maybe she had you know put the pieces together that he was, you know, shaking his tremolo watching her or thinking about her. Maybe he could. And the thing is, is you're right, because she she uh, breaks up with her boyfriend in a later scene. The, the mythical, maybe, or exaggerated Doug. Maybe, Doug, maybe he yeah. could have, you know, uh, arranged a date with Linda. She might have been into it. You know, it's her best friend's uh, older brother, that kind of thing. But, Plus, he does look older. Yeah, he, does. You know, he, may, he may be only 18, but he looks like 30, yeah. so perfect for her. He has a right? nice car and um, all that. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But that, that's all over. It's all over. That's done. <laughs> he, that's been forever. Those dreams have been crushed. <laughs> Anyway, so anyway, I just wanted before we move to the big elephant in the room, the greatest character of all time, Jeff Spicoli. Uh, I just want to say a little bit about how much I like Brad's relationship with his sister. Right. So he he again, there the adults aren't around. And there is one scene where Ron Johnson delivers flowers to her. Um, he go kind of ghosts her later, it's implied. But um, he, you know, he delivers flowers to her and she wants to hide the flowers from her parents. So, you know, she tells Brad not to tell anybody. And he kind of he kind of jokes with her, but he mostly is, is supportive. And then, of course, the whole abortion thing where he gives her a ride and asks if she's hungry. I mean, I really thought that was moving. You know, I thought that was a really good thing that, you know, often with my sister, we were always fighting, you know, and we were probably similar in age range. I mean, I like my sister at the time. I like her a lot more now. But, you know, we were kind of more fighty. And I kind of liked that he had this kind of almost fatherly relationship with her. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, I thought that was another way. This movie has heart to it. You know, it's got like funny scenes. It's got like jarring, realistic scenes. But it's got like this emotional center that I think is so real. And the characters all have, even Damone, have some redeeming qualities. Like, and and they're they're human in a way that I think a lot of teen movies wouldn't do you know yeah the i mean the scene you're talking about is after he picks her up from the abortion clinic he's you know we talked about how he gave her a ride supposedly to the bowling alley he sees her going over to the clinic he knows what's up he goes and waits for her when she comes out she she's thinking she lies and says she has a ride home she's gonna have to take the bus and he's waiting for her and she's like realizes that he knows what's up they have a little chat, right, where he's basically saying, are you going to tell me about the dude and all that? And she's like, no, nah, she's not going to say anything. And he's like, all right, I'll just be our little secret. And, and and you could you can see that he has a lot of they have a lot of affection for one another and that he views her very brotherly and, you know, wants to protect her, but also respects her, you know, as uh, as as a, her own person and, you know, her, her desires. Yeah, he's not judgmental no, at all. no. He's like completely supportive. Exactly. Like, and it's really cool. Yeah. I think that's a really cool uh, touch. Exactly. All right. Speak, moving from the touching part of that scene and the touching part of Brad's scene with himself. Um, 
Let's move on to Jeff Spicoli. Um, okay, so Jeff Spicoli. Jeff Spicoli uh, obviously needs no introduction. We Everyone knows who he is. He's a, a, a cultural icon, right? Um, he's such a classic character. You can just say the name Spicoli and it evokes everything you need to know about the stoner surfer. You can visualize him. I think people even know Spicoli who don't even know this movie. They know what it represents. They know who he represents, what kind of archetype he represents, all those sorts of things. He mostly interacts in this movie with his friends, uh, you know, played by Eric Stoltz and Anthony Edwards. But his, uh, you know, kind of uh, arch enemy in the movie is Mr. Hand. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, before we talk about that, though, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the some of the kind of outcome of having such an towering performance and amazing character in the film. So when Universal saw this film, they hated it. They thought it was going to be a bomb. They didn't want to promote it. But what they did do was all of the marketing, even though Stacy Stacy's plot is such a big part of this movie. The way they marketed it, if you look at any of the DVDs or posters, they're all centered around Sean Penn. You know, they wanted to play up the comic part of this movie, but I also think that's a testament to how great he is in this film and what an amazing character and how entertaining the scenes with Spicoli are. You know, he, um, yeah, he basically, the main scenes are with him interacting with uh, Mr. Hand, but he also has scenes with his kind of stoner buddies, as we mentioned. Um, and, uh, I guess they actually got stoned for real. Yeah. Right. Uh, apparently um, that was, that happened, right? Yeah. I mean, that scene where they were like stumbling out of the van, uh, before the you dick scene, uh, I played at the beginning, they, um, were apparently really smoking weed in that van, you know, all method actors, obviously. Right. Yeah. And then Sean Penn went full method because he wouldn't allow anyone to refer to him as Sean Penn. And he even had uh, his dressing room door was labeled Spicoli and everyone had to refer to him as Spicoli. Um, as we mentioned, you know, the first scene we see of him is an All-American burger where they where they take off their shirts and he's like, mm, something happened to him or whatever. Yeah. It's like so funny. And, and that whole scene where they're fishing for money and stuff. But just his mannerisms and everything, it really seems like a different person. Like Sean Penn has been great in a lot of movies. He's probably one of our best living actors, but I don't think he's ever transformed himself so much as he did in this movie. I mean, every one of his gestures and mannerisms. He might argue he did for like, milk, but yes. Kind of, but I don't think so. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, he's, milk is great. You know, he won an Academy Award for that. You know, he's great in milk. He's great in almost everything he does, um, you know, given the how well, how good the movies are. But in this case, I mean, every little mannerism is Jeff Spicoli. Yeah. It's like its own thing. I mean, he literally transformed himself into another human being. And he invented right? that, right? I mean, he... he yeah. Like, even though it was based on somebody he knew growing up, but he really invented this character. Right. So, so the, his most iconic scenes, I mean, there's many scenes of him and we'll talk about a few of them, but one of the, the most iconic ones and the ones you probably remember the most are the ones where he's interacting with Ray Walston's character, Mr. Hand, right? Jeff played that scene at the beginning where he's late to the class, which he is many times in the movie, uh, where Mr. Hand rips up his little 
uh, attendance slip, his pink slip or whatever they're given. And he calls, he says, you dick. Yeah. But I also love the part of that where he looks in the class and he's like, hey, I know that dude. Yeah. That's all improvised. That was just something he he improvises like crazy in this movie. Like there's another scene where he, you know, um, Mr. Hand asks, where's Mr. Spicoli? And he sends another student to fetch I'm him. I'm going to play that And he now. walks in and he has a, oh, okay, play that scene. Yeah. C, D, F, F, F. Three weeks we've been talking about the Platt Amendment. What are you people? On dope? A piece of legislation was introduced into Congress by Senator John Platt. It was passed in 1906. This amendment to our Constitution has a profound impact upon all of our... Where is Jeff Spicoli? I saw him earlier today near the first floor bathrooms. Is he still on campus? Anyone? Yes, Desmond? I saw him by the food machines. How long ago? Right before class. Okay. Bring him in. What is this fascination with truancy? What is it that gets inside your heads? There are some teachers in this school who look the other way at truants. It's a little game that you both play. They pretend they don't see you, you pretend you don't ditch. Now, who pays the price later? You. Wait a minute, there's no birthday party for you here. <laughs> oh, man. What's the reason for your truancy? Just couldn't make it on time. You mean you couldn't or you wouldn't? Well, it was like a full crowd scene at the food lines. Food will be eaten on your time. Why are you continuously late for this class, Mr. Spicoli? Why do you shamelessly waste my time like this? I don't know. <laughs> Mr. Han, will I pass this class? Gee, Mr. Spicoli, I don't know. That's nice. I really like that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave your words on this board for all my classes to enjoy. Giving you full credit, of course, Mr. Spicoli. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's an incredible scene. So first off, before we talk about Spicoli, I got to say that Mr. Han character completely fucks up everything he's saying about the Platt Amendment. Right. Um, it, first of all, it's not a constitutional amendment. It was an amendment to uh, like an appropriation, army appropriations bill, uh, 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 the Teller Amendment. Um, it was not in 1906. It was 1901. And it wasn't John Platt. It was Orville Platt. And so and there's other things, too. So anyway, yes, I looked all that up. Sorry. But yeah, Jeff had this huge section all about the Platt Amendment. And I was like, maybe we should call this episode the Platt Amendment. I was going to joke, hey, Jeff, do you want to spend like 30 minutes on the platform? Well, but yeah, that is funny that he gets those those things well, wrong. But it, I guess that's Cameron Crowe getting yeah, it wrong. Yeah, Cameron Crowe getting wrong. But the yeah. funny thing about that is I had teachers in high school get shit wrong all the time. And they were so confident, you know, about saying things that were wrong. And in fact, it used to bug me that I didn't necessarily know they were wrong at the time. 
But very famously, at least in my head, I had a physics teacher in high school. It was like AP physics who got really fundamental things wrong about uh, special relativity that I didn't know at the time. But in college, I learned like, well, that was a complete like just got very basic things wrong and explained things in a completely not even like hazy way or just subtly wrong, but like just got basic facts wrong. Teachers did this all the time. I mean, they're they're humans and stuff like that. But I just thought it was funny that Mr. Hand is like, you know, so demonstrative and so confident, but he gets us like, he, he's explaining all this, you know, very, uh, you know, dramatic stuff about the Platt Amendment. And he got like, there's like fundamental things wrong about it. So anyway, complete aside, but it amused me. So go ahead. Yeah. So the, the other cool thing about that scene is when Spicoli walks in, you know, he, as is typical, he doesn't have a shirt on. But he's got this bagel like stuffed in the front of his pants, yeah. like he's just gotten food. That was improvised by Sean. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So he was amazing. Um, anyway, so moving on, obviously, you know, we'll talk maybe more about Mr. Hand as things resolve between the two of them later. And there's obviously the pizza scene um, where Spicoli actually orders a pizza in the book. That was actually Damone doing that. So that was a good change because that made a lot more sense in the context of no one should be eating and the bagel and you get the pizza. But even just the way he shifts the pizza box, like those little gestures, yeah. I'm just astounded by his physical performance as Spicoli over and over again. And the the guy that we talked about before, the the dummies book guy who the character of Ratner was based on, claims in real life he's the one who ordered the pizza in. Oh, so, okay. So there you go. Yeah, in the book it was Damone who actually did it. In the movie, it was Spicoli who actually did it. So there's three different, you know, people who are all involved in that one thing. So and one more thing about the pizza scene. Of course, the pizza delivery boy is in a million movies. His name is Taylor Negron. He is like, if you see that guy, you'll be like, that dude. He's like in a million pizza guy. movies. Mr. Kind pizza of, guy. Kind of play, kind of playing Mr. Pizza Guy like characters over and over again. And this is probably one of the more famous instances of that. Yeah. So moving on, uh, we wanted to talk maybe about uh, Spicoli and the car scene. All right, let me play that. Seeing the new Playboy? Good. Oh, there's tits. Kill us! 
He's gonna kill us. He's gonna kill you and he's gonna kill me. He's gonna kill us. Hey, man, just be glad I had fast reflexes. My brother's gonna shit. Make up your mind, dude. Is he gonna shit or is he gonna kill us? First he's gonna shit, then he's gonna kill us. Relax, all right? My old man, he's a television repairman. He's got this ultimate set of tools. I can fix it. You can't fix this car, Smokali. I can fix it. All right. So that scene, um, you know, if you don't uh, know it or aren't familiar with it, uh, Jess Piccoli is driving Charles Jefferson's, the older brother uh, of the little Jefferson brother. I don't think it's ever given a name. Um, Trans Am kind of car um, that he was given by recruiters, apparently, to try to get him to go to their school. He's out of town. Spicoli's driving it because the little brother's too young to drive. He's like 14 or 15, something like that. They're looking for a party, um, driving around. He's zooming in and out of traffic and obviously saying all the things you heard. And then he makes a, a harsh turn and crashes the car. And a couple of things about this. Number one, the car is completely totaled. And, you know, you heard Jefferson's little brother screaming about how they're his big brother's going to kill them for wrecking the car. But the way they resolve that is they even rough up the car even more, dump it in the parking lot of the high school and let Charles Jefferson find it. And they wrote Lincoln rules all over it, which is the rival school uh, for Jefferson, which, and then uh, Charles Jefferson thinks that his car was stolen and then completely trashed by the rival high school. And then they play the football game. He terrorizes all the rival players and they win the big game and all that kind of stuff. But I want to say everyone thinks Spicoli's dumb and just got this dumb stoner. If he's the guy who figured out that solution, that's a brilliant solution to that problem, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Although it's his weird thing about saying he has tools and can fix the car. I mean, there is no way, like, like his little brother, the little brother says, there's no way you could fix this car. It's so funny that he's like, yeah, I'll fix yeah. it. <laughs> but yeah, who knows who thought of that? If it was, if it was the brother or him. Yeah. But, um, anyway. Yeah, that is true. The, the thing about a couple things about this scene that, and the, and the reason that I think it's such a funny scene, which is number one to me, uh, you know, years late, a couple of years after that, I probably spent like half my teenage years driving around in cars, going from one party to supposedly another better party somewhere else. Yeah. And you know what? They all sucked. There, there's mm-hmm. n- all these parties like, oh, no, no, this party sucks. Let's go to this other one. It's like most of every evening was spent going from one shitty party to the next. None of them were better than any other ones. They were all stupid. None of the frolicking and nudity I was led to believe that would be happening ever happened. Um, mostly it was just idiots being drunk and loud and stupid and all that and acting like they thought they were supposed to act based on whatever movies that they were watching or, you know, like we talked about again in Terminal Preppy in the Dead Kennedys episode. So there you go. That They were like, oh, turn here. I've got to go to this party over here, all, all that shit. The other thing, too, that's hilarious is the little brother talking about Bo Derek's tits um, and how he likes sex. You know, this is clearly a kid who's never seen never had sex and never seen boobs in real life, you know, some virgin topic, which is hilarious because that's exactly how, you know, some 14 year old virgin kid would be talking about this. And they got that exactly right. And you wanted to talk about the reference of Bo Derek, right? 
Yeah, well, in the book, it's Suzanne Summers, yeah. which is ridiculous because she never appeared at Playboy, yeah. whereas Bo Derek appeared at Playboy multiple times. Right. So it's it's like they they the flaws of the book are just corrected over and over again in the film, and I'm not sure who was responsible for that. Um, if it was Cameron Crowe himself just fixing things, or if it was someone who told him, "Hey, yeah, she Suzanne Summers was never in Playboy." So, yep. uh, yeah, it's it's like there's so many things in the book you read, and it's always either the same. The good parts of the book are the same in the movie, or they're just improved upon in the movie. Yep. Um, and that's why one you can get, and the other one's out of print. That's <laughs> yeah. So exactly, one's the classic of all times, the other is out of print, and no one cares. Right. Um, all right. Next, moving on here, the the uh, other Spicoli scene we wanted to play was his dream um, when he won the surf contest, which was actually filmed after the rest of the movie wrapped. Um, so I'll play it. The world's finest surfers showed up today to do battle with what's turned out to be the biggest wave to hit this coast since 1946. Hello, everybody. I'm Stu Nahan. I'd like you to meet this young man. His name. Jeff Spicoli. And Jeff, congratulations to you. Things look kind of rough out there today. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did battle some humongous waves. But, you know, just like I told the guy on ABC, danger is my business. <laughs> you know, a lot of people expect that maybe Mark Cutback Davis or Bob Jungle Death Gerard would take the honors this year. <laughs> Those guys are facts. <laughs> That's fantastic. Let me ask you a question. When you get out there, do you ever fear for your life? Well, Sue, I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's a way of life. No hobby. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, let's party. <laughs> Where'd you get this jacket? I got this in the network. Let me ask you a question. What's next for Jeff Spicoli? <laughs> Headed over to Australian and the Hawaiian Internationals, and me and Mick are going to wing on over to London and jam with the Stones. <laughs> you guys are invited, too. <laughs> Dad says you have to get up. Leave me alone. Dad says you're gonna be late again, you butthole. Leave me alone. Dad says you're gonna be late again, you booger. Dad, just run so sloppy. So good. So good. There's so many parts of that scene that are just amazing. So the fact that <laughs> yeah, the little totally. brother calls him a butthole, 100% accurate. Yeah, it's super funny. He, Jeff Piccoli's room, if you don't recall, is filled with like Playboy and Penthouse pinups like all over his room. His bong is there, all that stuff, including one of the pinups is Dorothy Stratton, who was, you know, famously murdered at Movie Star 80s yeah. about that. She's on the wall uh, behind him. I did not recognize her, let the record show. I read that particular one, but maybe I could have recognized her if I paid attention. Um, the uh, the other parts about that that are great, like, you know, the network jacket line was improvised, but the the thing where he says, hey, those guys are fags. Yeah. That is a kind of like, you know, a homophobia, gay slurs that were just an element of the culture at that time. Like Spicoli didn't have any animus towards gays or anything. Right. Um, it's not an ex- it just was that's the way people talk. That's how people talk. That's the way people talk. The best part about that though, to me, is where he says, you know, those guys are fags, and Stu Nahan goes, That's great. You know, he's just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Stu Nahan kicks ass in yeah. this scene too. He's perfect. It's supposed to be Johnny. Carson, where'd you get that right? jacket? He's like, uh, well, I'll talk about that. He's all where'd you get that jacket? Oh, from the note. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, originally, so in the book, it's basically the dream sequence is a tonight show segment where he's on with Johnny Carson. Obviously, they tried to get Johnny Carson. He said no. Then they went to the 
the F rate, D rate Johnny Carson toast. Oh, God who had just been fired from the Tomorrow Show that just been canceled and he was too depressed to do it. But the thing is, again, this is where the movie gets something right that the book doesn't. Because this whole scene with the green screen, weird, surreal use of green screen with the, you know, the roiling waves in the back is just perfect. Like this is, this is the way it should have been. And in the book, it's it, the Johnny Carson thing just doesn't come off as nearly as humorous. And Stu Nahan, just as I mentioned, just kicks ass in this scene. And it's it's just a great scene. Where you get One that of my jacket. favorites in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Um, lastly, what we're going to talk about here um, is there's a field trip that Spicoli goes on um, with Mr. Vargas. Now, Spicoli apparently is not in the uh, biology class that Mr. Vargas teaches. We should mention the biology class a little more because there are other scenes uh, that state basically Stacy and Mark are lab partners in the uh, I guess in in the in the earlier scenes and there's a scene where Stacy's like uh, you know playing with a monkey and Mr. M- Mr. Vargas is just this horror movie figure yeah. like he's very macabre and wan he was not the most physically appealing guy they kind of make a joke about that at the end which we'll get to um, but yeah so there's early scenes of him and there's all these rumors about how he will, he actually will show people dead bodies. And that's what leads to this scene. Yeah, so he does, and and the guy, supposedly this character is based off on uh, in the book, would take his students to, you know, various like, um, you know, post-mortem things and like weird- Like the morgue or yeah, whatever. Yeah, morgue, uh, necropsy sort of stuff. And this was sort of this really weird dude. But anyway, so Mr. Um, Vargas takes his class on a field trip to see uh, an autopsy, and Jess Ficoli, uh tags along. And I want to play a few scenes from that, just because they're really funny, uh, for no other reason. I'd like to ask you one last time, conduct yourselves with the utmost maturity. Hey, you in my class? I am today. So Spicoli wants to show up to see the dead body. He wants to see the dead body, so he's not in the class. He, he, uh, you know, kind of stows away with the class on the field trip, and he's getting off the bus, and Mr. Vargas, as they're going in, says, hey, wait a minute, you're not in my class. And you hear Spicoli say, I am today, which is great. Um, Then they're observing this dead body out on the slab that, you know, people are starting to get a little nauseated and looking, they see this um, obviously prepared uh, corpse uh, for, um, it looks like it's not really an autopsy, actually, uh, if I recall correctly. It's really a cadaver that's being used uh, for like medical school type uh, pathology uh, classes. Um, and here's uh, Spicoli again. Desperate. Who are these guys? Most of them are derelicts, Greg. They sold their bodies to medicine for money. About uh, $30, I think. 25 Righteous bucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> Again, Scully never having money yeah. being a running joke in, in the film. So, uh, you know, $25 to sell your body to science. Scully's thinking yeah. that that's a good bargain, right? And something he might consider. Um, even though they told him, you know, that all these were, you know, derelicts, uh, you know, uh, bums and whatnot, hobos, tramps, as you would. Uh, and then lastly, uh, he, uh, Mr. Vargas um, is being assisted by the pathologist or doctor or whoever the guy is assistant, and he pulls the heart out of the cadaver um, 
and shows it to all of the students. And here is the human heart, which you can see is actually located in the center of your chest. Oh, gnarly! <laughs> and of course, Stacy runs out of the room. Yeah. Right? She gets uh, completely horrified and sick. And uh, so this is when Mark actually, you know, comes up to her and kind of takes care of her and says they'll, she, she's embarrassed by the whole thing. And he says, well, we'll just kind of blend in. And that's kind of the turning point in their relationship too. Right. Um, where, you know, she realizes, wow, this guy's really great. Um, nice guy. And he's sort of fought it out with Damone but later they'll reconcile. So it's an important scene, but it, yeah, the gnarly is so funny. It's iconic um, too, right? You've heard it a billion yeah. times. Right. Um, and maybe people listening don't even know where it's from, but there it's uh, Spicoli. Um, lastly here, uh, a couple things. One, I think you and I both agree that this is, again, as you were saying, one of the greatest performances in cinematic history of Sean Penn as Spicoli. And two, the actor... Um, you know, Mr. Vargas is just a, a, a kind of physically frightening. But in the movie, the character is uh, married to weirdly, and everyone doesn't understand it, this incredibly beautiful, much younger woman um, uh, played by the actress Lana Clarkson. So do you want to tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so Lana Clarkson, you know, she was just kind of a, you know, a very minor credit here. Um and she's like this beautiful woman, but later she would be murdered by Phil Spector uh, in 2003, basically. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. What was her relation to Spector? I don't really know. I don't really know. I didn't really do the research on that. Yeah. It's just an interesting side note. It's one of those like 10 facts you find about fast times, you know, and they'll they'll show like this is one of the weird factoids. But we should say this all is at a dance and it's kind of the one of the final scenes of the movie where, you know, Damone and, and Ratner get um, kind of um, reconciled over the whole battle over Stacy, and then D- Ratner and Stacy kind of get together. We also see that Linda Barrett's boyfriend, you know, doesn't come to her graduation and she's all distraught. And But things kind of wrap themselves up and then in the final scene is another great scene, uh, which is in that that quickie mart or whatever. What is it? The tea? Min, I'm gonna keep mini tea mart. Mini tea mart, and that's where um, Spicoli and Brad have their have their kind of final scene together. And then a, a someone tries to rob the store, and uh, you know Spicoli is distracted by Spicoli, and Brad's able to uh, you know grab the gun from them and. He becomes a hero. And then there's this whole ending with uh, Oingo Boingo's Goodbye, Goodbye, where they have this kind of American graffiti where what happened to them after the movie kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and But it's just an incredible movie. And again, Sean Penn, especially, the performance is just so memorable. And I never get tired of watching the, the, this, this, uh, these scenes. I actually don't get tired of watching the movie. I watched it a couple of times before this show. And I'm even going to watch it again because I got the Blu-ray and I want to see it in Blu-ray and as well as some of the extra features because it's it's really entertaining. And it's also, I think, stood the test of time. You can find tons of references to this on YouTube. We mentioned the Stranger Things thing. Um, I think it influenced the John Hughes and other movies of the 80s and beyond. Um, I think really it's probably... I would even put it above American Graffiti as the greatest teenage movie of all time. One of those extra features, um, by the way, I believe in the edition you have, 
is uh, Mike Damone's junk. So you'll get to see that. That's one of the scenes that was sort of edited out to avoid the X rating when he. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. See, I, I, yeah, the, I had the this DVD awesome edition that was probably released in like 1996 or seven, and it's got like a few things, but the Criterion I just got, so I'm really interested to see what's on there. Here's another tidbit I forgot to mention before about Phil Spector is, in the movie is the song Winter Wonderland, uh, sung by Darlene Love who that's one of the transitional scenes to show the passing of time right yeah. there's a funny little scene where a kid pees on a he's sitting on a, the mall santa yeah. claus and he pees on him and that's to show i think what that's mainly for is to show that stacy couldn't have gotten pregnant by ron johnson yeah they wanted the time to pass so that it could it would definitely be demoted, yeah. right so they wanted enough time to pass so that it could he couldn't be because demone's like how do you know it's me you know and uh you know, so they, I think they did that on purpose. Well, of course, Darlene Love was one of the protégés of Phil Spector, and uh, he went on to murder another person in the movie. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, we'll put a, we'll put, maybe that'll be one of our clues for this episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, having Lana Clark say uh, that whole story, because yeah. that is a, yeah, and we'll probably put more factoids in the Instagram for that. So, all right. The movie wraps up, by the way, with uh, Revo and the Cinch. Uh, playing the the uh, prom of uh, Ridgemont High and uh, Jess Piccoli uh, getting up and and performing uh, Life in the Fast Lane with that with that band. Actually, no, he performs Willie Bully. Oh, does he? They do Life oh, yeah, in the okay, Fast Lane, right. but then they start playing Willie Bully, and he's like, hey, I know yeah, that, that's song. Right. And he that's gets right. up on stage and starts, takes over the mic, and the t- they're trying to stop yeah. him from doing that. We should also mention that the whole Mr. Hand thing is resolved by Mr. Hand coming to Spicoli's house. Yeah before the dance and making him discuss history. The Davis. And so it's implied that they, (laughs) right. The Davis amendment or whatever. And he basically, uh, you know, it's implied that Spicoli really wants to go to this dance, but Mr. Hand is kind of, you know, forcing him to study and stuff. And then it turns out, he says Spicoli will probably squeak by because Spicoli's like, no way, I'm not going to be anywhere near your class. And he's like, well, you think you're going to pass? And he says, oh, aren't, you know, and then he says, yeah, you'll probably squeak by. So that's all resolved. Um, Mr. Han was impressed that Spicoli was actually actually listening and retained some of the the lessons. So Yeah, there's that whole clip of Spicoli talking about Jefferson and stuff, and it's great. All, All of it's golden. I mean, you should just really... We could play every clip of Spicoli and it would be entertaining. I think um, you should just really see the movie. I think my one beef with the movies, I wish it was a little longer. I wish there was more of those deleted scenes in there because I think it would be nice to just spend more time with it. But for the most part, it's a pretty tight and fast 90 minutes and a lot goes on. And there's a lot of stuff that's covered. I mean, it's it really holds up for me way more than I thought it would. I was I was worried about some of the sex scenes being more cringy, especially the Jennifer Jason Lee scenes. But I didn't find them that way at all. I just found it to be kind of realistic and uh, totally convincing. Yeah, no, I agree. I've always loved this movie. I think it's great. You should go see it. I think it, I'm totally very long on it. Um, I think Pete, this is going to hold up generation after generation. There may be things that don't play as well, you know, or people are further removed from some of the cultural things. But great culture is great culture. Great art is great art. And this is definitely that. So I think uh, for years to come, people will be watching this movie and enjoying it and 
Um, I think it'll, you know, rise and fall as the tides take it, so to speak, as Spicoli would say, but uh, uh, it'll be good. So watch it. All right, let's wrap up this episode 20, another epic episode. Just get used to it, uh, CFX fans, because we're going to talk about these things that are these monumental things in our life, and we're just going to go on and on and on. But hopefully you find it entertaining and uh, had some laughs along the way. So uh, this is Jeff, and that's Slip. All right. See you next time for episode 21. See you next time.